Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you doing? I'm gonna say it. I'm nervous. <laughs> nervous? That's a new I, one. Oh, yeah. It's not about the show. Uh, <laughs> I never um, should have assumed. I I I made a choice and I may come to regret it. I I was getting ready. I was in the office a bit earlier before the record and I was doing stuff on my laptop and I left the door open because I didn't need to. We weren't recording it. And uh, one of the cats came in and sat in the other chair in here. And it's been so long. She loves that chair and she hasn't been in it in ages because this room is usually closed off to her. And so when it came time to starting to record, I was like, do I leave her? Do I chance it that she'll just sleep at the very least until a break or something so that she doesn't disturb things? And at first I thought, okay, this will be fine. This is usually the time of day she's sleeping. It'll be fine. But she's she's making eyes at things. Like she's looking like she's suddenly feeling like a kitten again and is uh-huh. like, I'm going to pounce on some things. So I don't know what's going to happen over there, but uh, heaven help us all. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I like is that it's 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 on it's rattled you. It's yeah. rattled you to the point that you're like, I feel uneasy about this. I do. I do. Uh I feel about as uneasy as I used to be when I tried to do your side of it. Ah. Uh I saw some old clips before we started this, which some what I was doing when I was in the office. And it was so painful <laughs> to, to watch myself. Like, I don't like watching myself anyway. Um, the joke is, not a fan of the sound of my voice. <laughs> We've learned that in the past week, which is phenomenal to Yeah, it's gotten discover. better. 
It's gotten better. That's good. Um, but I, uh, I saw the clip of the very first time that I tried to like open the show on my own, and it was such a painful like true crime and cocktails. And then there's just like probably two seconds of silence, and then famous fatalities edition. Like it was bad. Like it was, it was so bad. It was hard to listen to. I'm not saying I'm the best, but I'm so glad that I've at least taken a step beyond that. Listen, I don't think it was that bad. I think you're being hard on yourself. I think it was very charming, um, relatable, and I think that you pulled it off. Well, I I could run an old woman down with a car and you'd find a reason why it was her fault. She shouldn't have been there. She shouldn't have been in she shouldn't have been see, wearing all black in that crosswalk see, at night. See, it so. doesn't matter what I do. Again, I could do anything and you'd be like, yeah, well, you had no choice. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> that's how this works. Which I love. But yeah, that's where we're at. Well listen, also buckle in because uh spoiler alert, you're gonna be doing it again next week. So Yeah. Yeah, I forgot. It's been a it's been a scotch. It's been a scotch of time. It. Yeah. It's been a scotch since I've done it. Um, so I'm, I don't even remember the last time I did. November, maybe? It might <laughs> have been. Might which have feels been. like 80 years ago, which I can't. But uh, it'll be fine. It's going to be, be great. Fine. It's going to be great. We'll talk about that yeah. more later. Um, <laughs> just because, you know, we don't do this in this order. What are we doing? Uh, up is down. Left is right. <laughs> Apparently going backwards. We're going backwards. Um, now, listen, of course, this episode is, of course, the Curse of the Chippendales episode. And what is Ohio? Is there was a synchronicity that happened today. So I texted Christy about this earlier because I could not wait to tell her. So Facebook memories. Something I love is Facebook memories. And I realize that I should be posting on Facebook ever because then in five years I'll get memories because I haven't really been been posting that much on there, you know, for the past few years. But I love the ones that are from, you know, many years ago. What pops up today but a memory from six years ago today of friend of the podcast, Leslie Seiler and I in Las Vegas, Nevada – and what was part of that trip? Well, I'll tell you, it was us seeing the Chippendales. I mean, what, what? are the chances? What a nice, just, yeah, there's no better word than synchronicity. What a perfect, I mean, it. I would have even accepted it if that happened on the day this episode releases. But the fact yeah. that we had planned out in advance when we were going to record this episode. Yeah. And then it's just so happening to be on that same day is wild to me. I would have also accepted if it was uh, either you two or us going to Disney and meeting Chippendale. A hundred percent. That I would have too. That yeah. I would have too. But what's amazing is I, I texted Christy this Im- immediately. And then I texted Siler and I said, listen, you're not going to believe this. But this is the Facebook memory that came up. And I said, and Christy and I are recording the Curse of the Chippendales episode tonight. <laughs> and what did she come back with? It was something like, it was like, whoa, that's crazy. And wait a minute. Someone had the audacity to kill a Chippendale? What a monster. <laughs> I was like, that Right to sense. the heart. Right yeah, to the it. heart. Right to the yeah. heart. Uh, but listen, it made me realize that um, we got to have her on to a Patreon. Um, you know, I got to talk to her about that. She may be hearing it. She may be hearing 
that now that request because it might slip my mind uh, because I feel like we got to go through the full story of our night at the Chippendales show because that was uh, oh a hundred percent it's it's not right for me to tell it alone. No, you know? it needs it needs to be heard. We need both sides. Yeah, and I love the idea that if if this slips your mind, she's heard now yep. that there is a request for her presence. Yeah, and then she can just randomly text you, "I'm in." Yeah, no pressure. I did not mean no to context, pressure. no pressure. Yeah, uh, <laughs> no, yeah. no pressure yeah. uh, to force her into it. I feel like she'd be into it anyway. Oh but, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's time. It's time. Uh, but yeah, that was a magical weekend. That was also the weekend that I. Oh gosh, real hungover. I made a choice at a buffet to. Oh, oh and it's hard for me to even say these words. I'll just say. I'll just say the one word: oysters. Oh. No. Oh, and I love oysters, but not hungover. Don't do it. Oh, Don't no. do it. I think in my mind, I was like, oh, they're salty. Like, that'll be, nope. Terrible move. Terrible move. If you want salt, get a potato of some sort. <laughs> <laughs> what I love so is, many forms. I told you how I would defend you for running down an old woman, and you're <laughs> shaming me for oysters. <laughs> Not intentionally. Not intentionally. No, but it's proof that um, that's just how bad the oyster choice was. <laughs> I, if we were in person and you were like, I'm going to get these oysters, I'd go, oh, I don't think. And if you are if you made a face and we're like, oh, is it a bad idea? I'd be like, put one on my plate. <laughs> that's the truth. And I, and I would just eat one. Yeah. I, you don't really eat them. I can't. <laughs> Don't they just like go down? I can't. Yeah, I really like them, but that's they're an acquired thing for sure. sure. But then that made me think of when we were in Vegas at a buffet and uh, Christy wanted uh, to have this tart, but it wasn't what she wanted it to be. And she's like, you know what? This needs cheese. And I was like, give me a minute. And I ran up to that buffet and I got her a mug of shredded cheddar cheese. And I was like, I think this is my love language. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And it was delicious. And then the cheese kicked it up a notch, remember? You were like, oh, this is good. Yeah. It did. Because it it was an apple tart right. that I had put bacon on. That's right. And I'm like, but it needs something else. And that something else was a mug, <laughs> a ceramic mug of cheddar cheese. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like what's nice for me is that it was like an act of service. It was a gift. Yeah. It was a giving of my time. It was uh, like it was a quality time. And uh, I think the words of affirmation were that, uh, no, no, you're right. You need to try it because you're, you're, what you're thinking is correct. So I feel like I actually may have checked off almost every love language with that incident. I like that a lot. I do too. I also like that I've <laughs> written in my notes, Vegas cheese mug. <laughs> <laughs> Because I know we have a we have a picture of it somewhere. There I is. Think we do. Oh yeah. So of course. Oh yeah. I'm always always thinking. What can I uh, What can I do so I can have something to post? Of course. And the answer is well, I, they need a graphic to go with something we're talking about. Well, listen, that's your producer brain, and I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, your producer right. brain, which lives very close to your noggin, Google. Uh, that's a callback, <laughs> ladies you. and gentlemen and people. Uh, now, listen, speaking of graphic, uh, the other thing, of course, that came to mind when we were talking about the the Chippendales uh, was, of course, 
us watching Magic Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It took me a while to get there. (laughs) I was late to the game. Yes. To watch the movie. I had never seen it before somehow. Like, it was to the point where people were like, you? Well, I think really? when, when Blanche came onto this show and people met yeah. her and everything that she was about, I think that for yeah. most people it felt impossible that Blanche had not had not seen Magic Mike. And I mean, in honor of that, yeah. I did also wear my True Crime and Crushes shirt, which of course was the <laughs> was the Blanche uh, list as of November 28th, yeah. 2021. And at that point, Christy was at 211 crushes <laughs> listed on the show. Uh, yeah. And I was at 20. Which I will remind everyone is less than a tenth. But anyway, um, it doesn't matter. It's not a. It's not a competition. Not a competition. Um, but again, shout out again to to Allie Cousins who uh, who went through every episode and every bonus episode and took a tally of any time uh, uh, Blanche mentioned a crush. But anyway, so yes, so when Christy came here last March uh, for our business trip. Uh, where we did all, all sorts of amazing things like Kelly Clarkson and the uh, Celebrity Game Face with Kevin Hart and everything. Yeah. One of the things that was high on the list was View Magic Mike. Yeah. And boy, did we. Yeah, we did. I mean, in my defense, because I immediately feel like I need to back myself up before people are like, okay, you really didn't watch it until 2021? I did not. The person that I watch... 99% of movies with is my husband. Yes. I'm not going to have him sit through that because he's not going to be interested. If there was much of a storyline, maybe, but even then, probably not because I know. I know the gist of what's going on. Uh, so then it was, yes, of course, we have to see this movie. I don't remember much of what I said but I seem to recall, like, <laughs> within the first, like, few seconds of the show starting being like an, is this rated R? Like, I, I, suddenly I was a nana and I was, like, fanning myself like a lady from the South who was just like, I do declare. I don't well, know what what's, that was. Well, good news. Um yeah. I have just searched in my notes on my phone, Magic Mike, and I found a file called Magic Mike Quotes. <laughs> of course so, you did. Of I'll course just, you did. Yes, and it was interesting that Blanche, when faced with uh, raw male sexuality, did start to <laughs> to clutch her pearls. It was it, it was amazing to watch. Um, <laughs> this is amazing. Okay, uh, I'm just gonna read these as yeah. And I don't. This was again. This was April second, 2021. Sure. Um, that I took this list down, and I'm gonna read them as I think I remember her saying them. So I'll do my best. Uh, Christy Blanche. Of course. (laughs) This is what mama wants. (laughs) Jesus. Yeah, that sounds right. I didn't expect nudity. (laughs) That was amazing. I was like, really? (laughs) Then followed up with, is this an R thing? This is- I think I meant rating. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yes, yes, of course. Excuse me, of course. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to go on a journey. A fucking naked journey. <laughs> I'm a very sheltered woman. 
personal favorite. <laughs> I may not be attracted to that body, but I'm attracted to that tongue. <laughs> oh. Oh, boy. Yeah. I have uh, zero memory of that. Uh, there's so many. There's so many more. <laughs> he, he gave your brother his life savings. The least you could do is play with his junk. <laughs> I need a man I can count on. And you know who's going to be there when I call? John Larroquette. <laughs> I don't even know how John Larroquette came up. Because the first time we talked about John Larroquette was when I, when you were talking about Matthew McConaughey. Oh, Matthew McConaughey You weren't that into him, and your quote was, Matthew McConaughey, I guess if I have to. (laughs) John Larroquette, dear God, please. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So that Mm -hmm. called back because John, uh, Matthew McConaughey was in uh, Magic Mike, of course. Then, of course, you said, and I quote, God, I really feel like I could be a madam. For men, ideally. I'd have to fire them if they fucked the girls, though. My boys are clean. And that's, of course, when we came up with the name Mama Nugs. <laughs> of course. Oh, God. Of course. Oh, so good. Oh, oh, my God. And then there was one more you said, I'd watch you strip at 40 as long as you kept it tight. <laughs> I don't know if that was in regards to me or one of the men. But uh, listen, I I liked it a lot. I liked it a lot. I like the idea that I was thinking you wouldn't look the same. Yeah. Two years from now. <laughs> I don't think it was about me then. It must have been some yeah. reference to something in there. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's the that's the journey that we go on is half the journey is not, it's trying to remember what it referenced. And then the other half is going, it doesn't matter. That's <laughs> why we love a quote sheet. Because a quote we sheet do. is things that are taken out of context completely that are hilarious then and they're hilarious now and you don't know why, but they're still funny. Yeah. Oh, my God. We still have, like, notebooks Oh yeah. of quotes that we've said from, like, trips when we get together. We have – we still say quotes from, like, our teenage years. Oh, yeah. That became a quote thing. Mm-hmm. So Let's many. check those guys out. Let's <laughs> check those guys out. Yeah. <laughs> do, I, <laughs> do I just stick it in or do I jig it a little, little? <laughs> There's so many. I know like, specifically, I have the vivid memory of being in grandma's kitchen. Yep. Talking about being roadies. Yes. And that's when that whole conversation came yes. out. Yes. I. Could not recall most things recently. Same. I I vividly remember that. I remember that too. I remember that too. Yeah. And the idea that you, you, yeah, I remember the whole bit. I remember the whole bit. And you were like, would I run in and then like find myself between the guy's legs as he's like sitting on an amp and it's like, oh, it's not, do I stick it in or do I just jiggle it a little? Like the idea that it would be like. Basically, young Blanche was making an appearance before we even knew it, and that young Blanche would be the worst roadie known to man, and that is such a funny bit. Such a funny bit. That, I think, was the same night that we went to Taco Bell, and I fell in love with the guy we started calling Crayola Crayola Head. Head. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because he had crayon red hair, like dyed red hair, and I 
it was just like that was it for me. And uh, yeah, and I remember I didn't have the 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 gumption to talk to him there. I think, or maybe we talked a little bit, but I didn't have the gumption to like take it to the next level. And what would that mean? Like, as for his phone number, that was so out of my realm. I mean, I feel like we were like 13, 14. Oh, yeah. I think we saw him. We maybe like milled around close in the hopes that he would make the move because we didn't know what to do. Do we stick it in or do we jiggle it a little? <laughs> we don't well, know. The other thing that is so charming is that is that then we left. No, we were talking to him. We were. There was some banter that the door got opened a little bit because we were there with, with my mom. Shout out Mother Laurel. Oh, we were there with her and then they left and we left and then I started to kick myself, remember? Because I was like, that they were talking to me. Like, what was I thinking? I should have gone for it. And then I was like, now I have the, the courage. Now I'm ready. And then I was like, maybe we'll see their car go by. So when we got oh, back- Oh, I remember to, that. Yeah, when we got back to grandma's yeah. house- we stood out on the corner just just in case that I saw a glimpse of their car go by. Like, oh, Lauren, that's the saddest. Get the blankets. That's so sad. <laughs> Standing on a corner, like, really Blanket hopeful. girl from the get-go. Blanche <laughs> from the womb. <laughs> wow. Yeah, we really were these same people. You're right. Yeah, we have not changed at all. 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I mean, I've seen like old videos of myself when I'm like, you know, 10. And it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, there she is. Like you just, like, she's the same. Yeah. She's the same. It never, it never stopped. Yeah. It never stopped. Again, uh, people may think Blanche from the womb. That's unlikely. In kindergarten. And I've probably told this story before, and if I have, I'm sorry, and I shouldn't be telling it anyway. In kindergarten, I had a boyfriend who I loved very much. Of course. Um, I was convinced we were going to get married, as all five-year-old couples uh, feel like they will someday. Um, and my parents would get phone calls from the teacher asking them to talk to me. Because their daughter kept kissing the, this boy in the hallway. <laughs> it was becoming a distraction. <laughs> and I just, for, number one, did they also call his parents? Or did of they put that not. all on me? I'm sure it was you, the little harlot in their eyes, for sure. Of course. Hashtag smash them a cup of the pipe of the patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> There's also something about... Uh, <clears throat> redheads that people are like oh be careful of that oh i know like right away right away um and also i'm i don't recall kissing this boy but i mean i recall i know that i did i just don't recall specifically it being the hallways but um it was like sweet innocent like on a cheek thing but it was only the one boy so like just to, she, uh, the phone call home just made it seem like it was so much seedier than it was, you know? And yes. I didn't care for that. And I don't blame you. I wish you. I remember who called because, oh, I'd give them a mean shout out. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
so sorry. There's like somebody no. like standing outside my window talking. And that was so terrifying there for a second. Um, oh. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, <laughs> move along. <laughs> move along. Um, yes. No, listen. And you know what's so funny is that I feel like in in kindergarten for me, what do I remember for me? I, I, I mean, I, I wasn't kissing boys then. That wasn't happening. Um, and listen, it's not happening now either. So you're right. We are still the same people. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I kid, I'll say I kid, this. I kid. In high school, which one of us had a boyfriend? That's true. I, I always had a boyfriend in high school. That's true. Yeah. So after kindergarten, I had a really long dry spell. <laughs> Noted. Noted. So it's like the beginning. (laughs) And then, I don't want to say the end. That sounds dark. It's like the beginning and then like decades later. So it's like every 20 years I'm golden. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, listen, I guess, I mean... I guess then it's uh yeah that's a good thing. Well, listen, I I don't want to apply that to my life because then that means no. that for me I would end up you know again sitting in the corner reading. Um, that's what all I did in kindergarten. Um, that feels sad. Well, feels you sad. were advanced. I was. I was very advanced. Um, but listen, no, that's nice. You know what I mean? It's uh, uh may the seasons turn, turn, turn. Right. I I will. Never, never tire of you singing on this show. Bless. Bless. I just pray that there isn't some somebody like, you know, racking it up, just waiting to come in like, we have a few bills <laughs> for you to pay. Song royalties. <laughs> I no, hope not. We're not singing I'd like, enough. We're not singing I'd like to believe that people are just jazzed to hear, you know, songs they haven't heard in a while and they're just excited about it. So they want to hear the songs. Yeah. So yeah. they don't want to they don't want us to stop singing the songs. Don't stop. See, and that's how my brain works. It's always something. Always something. Also, Crayola Head, if you're listening, call me. <laughs> I'm I'm braver now. Oh, this is growth. Wow. Again, I was watching old clips and it was me all of a sudden having the balls to be able to talk to Jonathan Frakes. That's I feel right. Like, I feel like this is now happening uh, for you and Crayola. Yeah. I love that we didn't even get his name. No. And I also love that, uh, you know, this. there's an implication that he would have known that we were calling him that, which we didn't, but. Nope. 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 I have, I do have a lot of, like, do you remember his face at all? A hundred percent, yes. Of, well, wow. I should have known that would be the answer. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. But I think also it was like, you know, it was a pretty small town and and that kind of hair. I was just like, where did you come from? Like, I don't think he was from there is the point. What I would like to do, and I will pay anything for it. I want to get you to sit down (laughs) with a police sketch. I knew exactly what you were going to (laughs) say. And I would like the two of you to draw this man. When he was roughly 15. Yeah. And then, then we use the Zuckerberg face. Yes. I'm sure there's got to be some sort of thing. Because you can't tell me that Zuckerberg's not doing something. Because if I use my phone to look up 
like on a, uh, use like Safari or whatever it is, Google or whatever, that I'm looking for a specific item. Suddenly in Facebook, there's ads for the very items oh, yeah. I was searching for. And it's like, oh, that's, that's weird, Mark. What's that about? Yeah. So you can't tell me he doesn't have the technology to run that through facial recognition. Like some sort of, ideally, high school yearbook database. Yeah. I'm sure probably, let's just go with Ontario. That narrows it down. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. Let's start with towns within like a certain kilometer radius. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, from there. I think that that is the only way. A, a, a police sketch artist and then calling upon Mark Zuckerberg to use facial recognition software that may or may not exist. We could also just say, yeah. hey, were you around the age of 15 with bright red hair and in the, in and around the area of Belleville, Ontario, Canada in, you know, 1996. I I like that our our dating shows have different styles. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I want cops right. involved. I want computers involved. I want high tech. I want a photo that I can stick a piece of yarn to and run to of another course. photo. I want that. And you're just pure message in a bottle, sleepless in Seattle. Yeah. And I can't even begin to think of what mine is. Mine's like a... <laughs> you're sleepless in Seattle. I'm RoboCop. <laughs> oh my God, do you know what I was going to say? You're... Have you seen this boy? <laughs> and I'm... It's not over. It's never over. It's not over for me. It was never over. Get in the water. That, I don't know why, that is one of my favorite parts. Where she's sitting. Oh, God. Or she's like on a, she's going to go on a rope swing or she's standing on a tree or on land or something. And he wants her to like get in the water. Yeah. And he, she just won't. And the way he says it makes me laugh so hard because I'm like, that would be me. I would be the one that needs someone to coax them because I would be like, I'm not getting in that water. Has anyone but, recut the notebook and taken out the sad scenes? Because I watched added that. the hot sex scene that they took out because it was too much. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, <laughs> let's get back to the con to the the content we're talking because that made a completely uh, a proper segue. Uh, yep. Before I do though, very quickly, what you drinking over there? Oh, I decided, you know what, I, I was just feeling, uh, I'm going to say this in Canadian and American, so we can all understand. Um, I was just feeling a pop. Of course. Or a, or a soda. Yep. Uh, so I've just gone, I've got the water, and then I've got a uh, a Coke with some limes in it. Oh. However, it's not a legit Coke. I, I'm, if, if I need to choose a Coke yeah. product- I prefer the brand, like the not the no name brand, because mm. there's something about it that I get the Coke, but it's not as harsh. I'll drink a regular Coke if if that's all there is. But if I had to choose, I want a PC Cola or a Co-op Gold. That's what I want. And so in our home, we refer to these as a folk. Because it's a fake Coke. <laughs> so we just use the term folk. And then that's, if it goes on the shopping list, we both know what that means. Yeah. So that's where I'm at. 
I love just that. Just a couple of lime slices in that. Oof. Yeah. Well, speaking of lime, I've got a lime LaCroix. I got another one of these peach black tea Nixie sparkling waters. And I got a mug of water in this Best Friends Animal Society mug. So there you go. Triple crown of waters. You you like multiple liquids. I like a lot of liquids. I like a lot of liquids. And listen, truthfully, did I break dry January? I did. I did. And uh, But I'm back on it. I'm back on it. I need to get back on the horse. I got to do another two weeks. You know what I mean? Well, that's the great thing about dry January. Yeah. It's flexible. Yeah. Right? Two weeks. What am I saying? Oh, yeah. yeah it's flexible, right? I think so. <laughs> well, you'll love this. I'm like, well, I also have to drink once this week. I have to do a tasting. It's neither here nor there. The point is, is that there's always time to drink. <laughs> and there's always time. See, dry January isn't just specifically January. So if you want, <laughs> you can go a little late into January and then you can go a scotch into into February, but and not that, too far. Yeah. That's my going to want celebrations. Yeah. Um, but then you can get back on it if you want. That's the thing about dry January. No rules and no boundaries, except, of course, there's rules and boundaries. Of course. We're talking Curse of the Chippendales. Now, for those who don't know, I guess we also should have said the Chippendales is a, is a, a strip review, a male strip review. I realize we didn't – I mean, maybe there's people out there that don't know what Chippendales is. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't so – they've, they've been on a real ride because I'm not sure that the synopsis I gave you to read is <laughs> Be helpful. No, 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 it does. It does. I went to another place writing this. Well, oh, well, (laughs) buckle in, everybody. Here we go. I can't (laughs) wait. Chippendales became an overnight sensation in 1979 when it introduced the concept of male exotic dancers to America. The dance troupe featured bare-chested men gyrating to the screams of adoring fans. In just one year, it went from a small club in L.A. to a multi-million dollar empire. But underneath the bow ties and body oil, there were countless lawsuits, blackmail, arson, drugs, and even murder. Just how far did the Chippendales founder go in his attempt at living the American dream? We'll find out tonight on True Crime and Cocktails. <laughs> that was awesome. I loved it. I was going to put Christy Oxborough Investigates, but then I was like, no, this, this calls for a we'll find out tonight. On true crime and cocktails, like that's like no, that's just do you. You got me you though. You got you. You got me twice though. Bare chested <laughs> men gyrating got me, and underneath the bow ties and body oil got me. Amazing. <laughs> I, I was gonna say underneath the g strings, but I was like, no, no, let let it go. Be an adult. Um, no need. Also, one thing quickly uh, that I forgot to mention off the top. Um. We often get a lot of like, uh, just say it. We often get a lot of praise uh, for our deep research. And so if something comes out that's incorrect, there is, people are taken aback. Right. And during the Bob Crane episode, we spoke of the show MASH. Oh, yes. And we mistakenly said that it was, it took place during the Vietnam War. Right. It did not. It took yes. place during the Korean War. We did not research it because anything that we just randomly bring up, we're just trying to pull out of our out of our noggin Googles, yep. if I may. Yep. In our defense, MASH was eleven seasons. Yeah. And the Korean War was three years, <laughs> and the Vietnam War was twenty years. So I feel like it makes sense that we would think 
it was it was a long show because it was yeah a long war yeah I and I will also own this one I think I was the one that said Vietnam um I'll own it and I'll just say yeah, I misspoke I apologize and I was very quick to jump on board with that I was like oh yeah that makes sense I have not seen that show in years no I haven't either but again, but, yes, uh, it's your point. That was not part of the research, so don't for anyone no. who, um, yeah, it was not part of the research. So that's uh, it wasn't fact checked. It because I just misspoke. It was my own memory, uh, just betraying me. There you go. Well, how when's the last time you saw an episode? Yeah, a long time ago. Great right? show, so, great show. But yeah, long oh time, my God. long time. Al, Alan Alda doesn't stop, and I love him so much. Would you? A young Hawkeye? Fuck yeah. <laughs> also, uh, BJ Honeycutt. Really? Yeah. I see that for you. He has like a nice guy where you're just like tired of being treated by like trash by other dicks and you're just like, okay, I want a nice guy. Yeah. And then you realize after that you treated him like a dick and you're like, well, I'm emotionally broken. I'm not <laughs> saying that this is my <laughs> My youth at all. I'm just saying. Careful how you treat your kids, people. <laughs> We've gone so off the rail. This is our longest opening and also just our most chaotic. I thought I'd be that someone up talking outside my window. Like, oh my God. This is this is rich. Yeah. This is rich. Look, my point is kids are like a sponge. They everything they are. Goes into their brain, and it's you think it won't affect them, and then somehow, decades later... It does. They're Blanche on a podcast. Yep. So, oh, and that cat's starting back on her snoring bullshit, so I, It sounded it's... like a baby. I was like, is there a baby over there? Am I having an episode? And the answer is no. No, it's just a cat, and I don't have anything light to... Oh, she's so loud. I'm like, ah, will this be a thing? Hopefully not. We'll huh. see. Here we go. Well, so once again, off the top, <laughs> kind of not the top, but it's close enough. We're fine. I need to give a disclaimer. In the episode, I will talk about murder, suicide, and rape. This is the trigger warning because I'm not going to think about doing it in this journey that is a real roller coaster. <laughs> real roller coaster. So, we are going to start today's story about male exotic dancers in the unlikeliest of places, a Dairy Queen in Vancouver, Canada, in 1978. Huh. 18-year-old Dorothy Stratton was working behind the counter serving ice cream when she first caught the eye of Paul Snyder. Snyder was a club promoter who had a side hustle as a pimp. Oh. Snyder had dreams of making it big in Hollywood and was on the lookout for the person who could get him there. And when Snyder saw Dorothy, he believed he'd found his golden ticket. So he started to shower Dorothy with expensive gifts, fancy dinners, and endless compliments. Some may call this romantic, but we're going to call it what it was, grooming. Mm, shoot. Snyder even bought the dress that Dorothy wore to her senior prom, Oof. a dance that he escorted her to when she was 18 and he was 26. Oh, dear. But Dorothy was flattered by the attention and shared Snyder's dream of making it in Hollywood. Snyder suggested to Dorothy that her ticket to Hollywood was to do a nude photo shoot. Dorothy later said, quote, 
It took him a little while to talk me into agreeing to take some test pictures. I had never taken my clothes off for anyone I didn't know. It took me about two weeks to agree. That same year, Playboy magazine was running a contest to find a centerfold for its 25th anniversary issue, which would be released in 1979. The contest was called The Great Playmate Hunt, and when Snyder had the photographer Ken Honey submit photos of Dorothy, Playboy arranged to fly Dorothy to Los Angeles for a test shoot. The contest winner ended up being a senior at the University of Oklahoma named Candy Loving. It was said that Candy was chosen over Dorothy because the higher-ups believed Dorothy wasn't ready and wouldn't be able to handle the spotlight that came along with the special anniversary. Dorothy moved to Los Angeles in August 1978 and worked at the Playboy Club in Los Angeles as a Playboy Bunny. But since she was only 18 when she started, she had to work as a hostess as she wasn't old enough to serve alcohol. The transition from Dairy Queen to Playboy had been overwhelming for Dorothy, so she stayed in close contact with Paul Snyder, the person she felt would understand. He joined her in Los Angeles in October 1978. And Snyder, to be blunt, no one really liked him. Oh boy. He would hang around the Playboy mansion trying to get with random women while he was dating Dorothy. Uh, to the point where he got kicked off the property and was only allowed to return if Dorothy was with him. So Snyder was starting to feel kind of left out, and with no source of income of his own, he decided he was going to try being a club promoter in Los Angeles. Enter Steve Banerjee. Now, showman Banerjee, known as Steve was born in Calcutta, India, October 8, 1946. In the 1960s, he moved to the United States, where he worked at Mattel before buying a mobile gas station in Playa del Rey, California. In 1975, Banerjee used the profits from the gas station to purchase a rock club in Culver City called Round Robin. Along with an unnamed partner, Banerjee turned the rock club into a disco with the name Destiny 2. It became quite popular on the weekends as it was the only club in town that stayed open until 4 a.m. In 1977, Bruce Nahan, I believe, I'm so sorry if that's incorrect, uh, a law student looking for a quiet place to study for the bar exam, happened upon Destiny 2 where he met Steve Banerjee. The two became close as Bruce would hang out at the club during the day. When Banerjee's partner decided to sell his interest in the club, Bruce and his father decided to buy it. And when Bruce passed the bar, he immediately became Banerjee's lawyer. And when Destiny 2 was doing great business on the weekends, Banerjee wanted to bring fun events to the club to increase the weekday traffic. His goal was big crowds every single night. He wanted Destiny 2 to become the destination place, so he started booking things like backgammon tournaments, Valley Jewish singles disco dances, and women's mud wrestling. And this was the moment I realized that I had severely misjudged the popularity of backgammon. (laughs) (laughs) Paul Snyder came in to suggest the idea of male strip shows. Snyder said that he had seen some gay male reviews in Canada, and he thought that women might be into it. And I find it fascinating that Snyder went to Banerjee with this huge idea, 
because his small suggestion ended up becoming a multi-million dollar empire, and Snyder never made a cent from it. I'm just surprised that someone like him, who is always looking for a way to make a quick buck, didn't try and cash in and profit financially from this. So Banerjee and Bruce were immediately sold on this idea, and Paul Snyder agreed to get the dancers that they would need for the show. The first performance took place in March 1979. There was no planning beforehand, no choreography, just a bunch of guys running around, dancing, stripping down to jock straps. Sometimes the jock straps would fall off. The audience on the first night was about half full, but women just kept coming back night after night, and the audience continued to get bigger and bigger. At first, Paul Snyder emceed the show, but then Banerjee hired Richard Barsh a master of cer- as master of ceremonies. Richard was told that he needed to make the crowd of women scream. During the third night, they were raided by the police, who arrested three customers and three dancers for engaging in unspecified lewd acts, while other dancers were arrested for nudity and indecent exposure. Banerjee was charged with providing entertainment without a license. But Bruce was apparently very good at his job, and Chippendales got back up and running. But Richard, the MC, said that the police raid gave him an idea. He said they should add costumes, characters, and choreography to the show. He wanted it a full production, with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Richard wanted to change it from a dance contest, and these are his words, to a woman's fantasy. Banerjee decided immediately that no men were allowed to watch the show, as he felt women wouldn't act the same if men were around. They got sued for gender discrimination on multiple occasions. But inside the club was a whole new world that women had never experienced before. The dancers made them feel special. They touched them, kissed them, and made the women feel like they were the ones in control. And I have seen a lot of footage from clubs... the club's early days and to see the dancers practically making out with the women in the crowd was somehow shocking to me so apparently Blanche is just like a tad more innocent than she seems Banerjee and Bruce realized they had really tapped into something big so they decided to revamp the entire club including change the name Destiny 2 as Banerjee wanted something more elegant The name was changed to Chippendales in honor of the club's furniture, which was created by London cabinet maker Thomas Chippendale. And just in case the new name wasn't enough to help class it up, Paul Snyder's girlfriend, Dorothy Stratton, suggested that the dancers wear cuffs and collars, which were similar to the outfits that the Playboy bunnies were wearing at the time. Flyers went up all over Los Angeles advertising Chippendales Presents Male Exotic Dancers. Ladies only will be permitted during the show. It was billed as the world-famous Chippendales, which turned out to be foreshadowing, which, as our OG listeners know, is one of my favorite literary devices. It is. The one time they made an exception to the women-only rule was when Hugh Hefner asked to come to a show. Banerjee wanted to be the next Hugh Hefner, so he happily obliged. Steve Banerjee also idolized Walt Disney and hoped to one day create an adult amusement complex, 
but I struggle to wrap my brain around the idea of a sexy Disneyland. (laughs) So I can't really think too much about it. At first, Chippendale shows were running on Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday nights, and soon they bumped it up to five nights a week. The building's capacity was 299 people, but they were known for pushing the limits. A fire department official said that they once counted 435 people in the building and that Chippendales was, quote, the worst violator for overcrowding that he had encountered in his 10 years on the job. And despite Chippendales stemming from Paul Snyder's idea, Snyder never profited from it. Once he was dropped as MC, he was no longer connected to the show. And lawyer Bruce wasn't exactly hurt by that because he saw Snyder as a sleazy grifter and was glad to be rid of him. And honestly, that seemed to be how most people felt about Paul Snyder. Most people, that is, except for his girlfriend, Dorothy Stratton. Dorothy and Paul got married June 1st, 1979, despite the fact that most people were against the marriage. Even Hugh Hefner thought it was a bad idea, but he believed in Dorothy and wanted to support her, so he set her up with a manager, making Snyder feel unnecessary. Then Hefner made Dorothy the centerfold in the August 1979 issue of Playboy. Then in late 1979, Dorothy appeared in Playboy's Roller Disco and Pajama Party TV special, which led to her being cast in episodes of Buck Rogers in the 25th Century and Fantasy Island. In 1980, Dorothy was named Playboy's Playmate of the Year and also landed the lead role in the sci-fi comedy Galaxina. Dorothy's star seemed to be on the rise, but the same could not be said for her husband. Soon his jealousy over Dorothy's emerging career got the best of him and the couple started to fight. While hanging out at the Playboy Mansion, Dorothy met writer-director Peter Bogdanovich, who some may know best for directing Paper Moon, Mask, and The Last Picture Show. He was also an actor on several episodes of The Sopranos. Uh, Peter was so taken by Dorothy that he wrote a part for her in his upcoming movie, They All Laughed, starring Audrey Hepburn, John Ritter, and Colleen Camp. During the filming of the movie, Dorothy and Peter started to have an affair. Snyder learned of the affair after he found letters and poems written by Peter to Dorothy. He then hired a private investigator to follow them. Dorothy went on a trip to England with Peter, and when she returned, she told Snyder their marriage was over. He became intolerable, he was loud, arrogant, and he had gotten heavily into drugs and alcohol. Snyder watched as Dorothy's career started to take off, which left him feeling like he was on the outside looking in. The more popular Dorothy became, the more jealous it made him. He suggested they make a movie together, something that Snyder had been planning since before they were married. But Dorothy said no. Ooh. And that was the final straw for Snyder. He began to realize that without Dorothy, he had nothing. No career aspects, no money, so he started to sell some of the gifts that Dorothy had been presented when she was named Playmate of the Year. He was also he also made money off of Dorothy during a recent promotional tour in Canada. It was all arranged by Playboy, and it was set to end in Dorothy's hometown of Vancouver. Snyder decided to add some personal appearances at a few local nightclubs where he pocketed all of her appearance fees. 
And of course, Snyder was hard up for money. He was a foreign national living in the United States without a green card, which meant he was unable to hold a job or have a regular source of income. Dorothy was paying all of his bills through her business manager, so Snyder relied on Dorothy for everything. And if she left him, Snyder would be forced to return to Canada. So Dorothy and Snyder agreed to meet around noon on August 8th. It was the first time they had seen each other in almost three months. Snyder tried to convince Dorothy to take him back, but Dorothy admitted she had fallen in love with Peter Bogdanovich. The couple agreed to meet a week later to discuss a monetary settlement in their divorce. In the meantime, Snyder met 17-year-old grocery clerk Patty Lerman, and started to groom her in the hopes of becoming the next Dorothy. Patty even moved in with Snyder, but not in a romantic capacity. Patty and Snyder also had another roommate named Stephen Kushner, who spent the night of August 14th at his girlfriend's house before heading to work the next morning. As planned, Dorothy met with Snyder at his house on August 14th, 1980, around noon, to discuss their divorce. Patty left the house to give them some privacy. The next morning, Patty returned home to find Dorothy's handbag, so she assumed the couple had made up. Later that evening, after Kushner arrived home, he and Patty were watching a movie when they started to get concerned that they hadn't seen Snyder or Dorothy when both of their vehicles were parked outside. Kushner and Patty knocked on Snyder's bedroom door around 11 p.m. When no one answered, they entered the room and found the naked bodies of Snyder and Dorothy. Whoa! From what investigators could tell, Snyder tied Dorothy up, tortured her, which included rape, then shot her point blank in the face with a 12-gauge shotgun. Oh my an god! Hour, within an hour of her being at the house. Investigators also believe that Snyder turned the gun on himself an hour after Dorothy's death. On August 9th, the day after Snyder tried to win Dorothy back and she said no, Snyder and his private investigator went to a gun store who told Snyder they would not sell him a gun due to his Canadian citizenship. Snyder asked the P.I. to buy the gun for him. P.I. said no. The next day, Snyder tried to convince the P.I. to buy him a machine gun for home protection. But once again, the P.I. said no. On August 11th, Snyder tried to buy a gun from a newspaper ad, but he got lost trying to find the address. He then borrowed a 38 pistol from a friend, but had to find a new weapon when the friend asked for the gun back. And then August 13th, the day before Dorothy's murder, Snyder purchased a used 12-gauge pump-action shotgun from a man in a classified ad. Later that night, according to his roommates, Snyder started talking about previous Playboy playmates who had died, specifically referencing Claudia Jennings, who died in a car accident a year before in October 1979, and how it caused a big problem for Playboy because the editors had to quickly pull any nude photos of the model before the issue was released. And so that that makes me feel like killing Dorothy was Snyder's way of getting back at both her And at Hugh Hefner. Yeah. At the time of her death, Dorothy was just 20 years old. Oh, Paul Snyder was 29. 29 and trying to groom a 17-year-old. Again, I will point that out. So, I will possibly say this incorrectly, but Dorothy Ruth Hoog Stratton 
was born February 28, 1960. She shortened her last name to Stratton when she moved to Los Angeles. She was described as the sweetest girl you would ever meet, breathtakingly beautiful, charming, and elegant. She was loved by everyone who met her. No one had a single negative thing to say about her. Dorothy's death was portrayed in the 1983 feature film Star 80, as well as the 1981 made-for-TV movie Death of a Centerfold. Dorothy was the inspiration for the song The Best Was Yet to Come by Canadian heartthrob Brian Adams, and was also referenced in Californication by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Dorothy was also the inspiration behind a 2012 art exhibit that featured origami sculptures. Origami, I guess I should have said. Uh, Dorothy's headstone includes a quote from a novel, uh, A Farewell to Arms, by Ernest Hemingway, which was chosen by Peter Bogdanovich. But the crazy synchronicity here is the quote was written by Ernest Hemingway, and Ernest, Ernest's granddaughter, Mariel Hemingway played Dorothy in the 1983 movie Star 80. Whoa. And while confirming that information, I learned that Mariel Hemingway and I share a birthday. (laughs) Whoa. Right? Yeah. Fun fact, Star 80 is in reference to Paul Snyder's personalized license plate. Oh, interesting. Mm. After Dorothy's murder, Hugh Hefner and Peter Bogdanovich were distraught. People close to Hefner said that he was never the same ever again. As for Peter, it was said that he collapsed at the news and had to be sedated. Peter then became obsessed with the idea of distributing the movie that they filmed just before her death, so he spent millions of his own money to buy the rights for the movie so he could personally distribute They All Laughed. It led to him filing bankruptcy in 1985, but Peter was convinced This was something he needed to do in Dorothy's honor. In 1984, Peter released a book entitled The Killing of the Unicorn, Dorothy Stratton, 1960-1980. In the book, Peter blamed Hugh Hefner and Playboy culture for Dorothy's death, saying that it was Hefner who pushed Snyder to the point of murder, because Hefner had barred Snyder from visiting the Playboy mansion. Peter also made claims that Hefner raped Dorothy, a claim that Hefner absolutely denied. Hefner also claimed that Peter Peter's lies caused Hefner to have a stroke. Hefner then tried to push back and made public claims that Peter slept with Dorothy's mother, then tried to seduce Dorothy's younger sister Louise, who was just 13 years old. Oof. And Peter paid for Louise to get plastic surgery to look more like her sister. Is that true? I don't know, but Hefner strongly believed it was true. Louise filed a slander lawsuit against Hefner, but dropped the suit in 1985. Peter denies all claims, but something about Peter that I'd like to touch on briefly in a Peter Peter Pumpkin Cheater (laughs) side note. (laughs) This, This particular episode brought a whole new energy that I can't explain. Peter Bogdanovich married his first wife, Polly Platt, in June 1962. While filming The Last Picture Show in 1971, 32-year-old Peter began an affair with 21-year-old Sybil Shepherd. Oh. Yeah. And well, at first they thought it was just going to be a fling. When the filming ended, they continued to see each other. 
So Peter left his wife and their two children and went to be with Sybil. Peter got officially divorced and he remained with Sybil from 1971 until 1978. Uh, That is, until he was in Singapore filming the movie St. Jack and Sybil came to visit and surprised him and caught Peter having sex with multiple sex workers. Oh dear. Then in 1980, 41-year-old Peter began an affair with 20-year-old Dorothy Stratton. After Dorothy's death, Peter was distraught. He never fully got over her, even talking about her in a 2018 interview saying, quote, I loved her dearly and deeply. But after some time grieving, Peter was finally able to move on. In 1988, 49-year-old Peter married 20-year-old Louise Stratton. That's right. Eight years after Dorothy's death, Peter married Dorothy's younger sister. The couple remained married until 2001. Then Peter lived in Quentin Tarantino's guest house in the early 2000s, followed by two years living at Brett Ratner's guest house before Peter moved in with his ex-wife Louise and her mother. He lived with them until his death in January 2022. I was going to say, I was like, didn't this guy just die? But I was letting, I was like, she'll get there. (laughs) The fact that it happened so recently, I was like, huh, that's weird. It's interesting. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Again, we're going to go everywhere. So Dorothy Stratton was the first person associated in any way with Steve Banerjee to be murdered. But unfortunately... She wouldn't be the last. Chippendales blew up in its first year, and by 1981, Banerjee was looking for a way to elevate the show. So he hired Nick DeNoya. Nick was a 40-year-old director, producer, and choreographer who promised that he could take Chippendales to the next level, and Banerjee was convinced that if anyone could do it, it'd be Nick. But once Nick came in, Richard Barsh was out as MC, which is too bad for the man who brought in the initial idea of adding costumes to the show. Basically, it seemed for anyone who had an idea that formed Chippendales into the massive success that it was, got shafted and kicked to the curb. Nick turned up the heat and the show became more choreographed, polished, and focused on storytelling. By 1982, there were 15,000 women attending the shows every month. And it wasn't just the show. At this point, Chippendales was becoming a full-on empire. They released calendars, magazines, coffee mugs, exercise tapes, and even a line of lingerie. Banerjee knew that he could take Chippendales even higher, so he decided to expand to New York. Nick agreed to find a club that would host Chippendales, and then at a diner, while they were hashing out details, Nick wrote on a napkin that if he found a club in New York and Chippendales became successful there, that Banerjee would give Nick permission to take Chippendales on the road, and that Nick would receive half of the generated revenue and complete control of the tour in perpetuity. Wow, now, that's, Banerjee, that's quite a napkin deal. <laughs> uh-huh. Now, Banerjee had a good lawyer. Unfortunately, the lawyer was not present at the diner at the moment. And Banerjee, for reasons we'll never know, signed the napkin without understanding what the word perpetuity meant. Basically, the napkin was saying, if Nick can make 
New York Chippendales successful, he gets complete control over the tour and half of its profits for life. Nick found a club in New York at 61st and 1st called Magique, who was willing to host the show, and in October 1983, the New York show opened to an immediate success. Allegedly, Brooke Shields spent her 20th birthday there. Huh. Nick wanted the New York show to be the biggest Chippendales show. The dancers now had cues and marks. There was more lighting and music and dancers. Nick added a new script with new characters, such as a barbarian, a politician, and a character they called The Perfect Man, who danced to the song The Kid Is Hot Tonight by Loverboy, who we've seen in concert together. And I'm going to make a bold claim that they sounded just as good live in 2012 as they would have in 1981. Did I see them live in 1981? Not unless I was the coolest baby on the planet. They opened for Journey in 2012, and it was a hell of a show. And here she goes, my only complaint, and yes, it's silly to hold a grudge for a decade. But after Journey played Don't Stop Believin', they set off confetti cannons. Great. Perfect. Exactly what the moment needed. But they didn't save it for the end of the show. They continued to play another three to five songs after that. And after a confetti cannon, you have nowhere to go. Yeah. Make it your last song. Confetti cannon. Leave us wanting more. Done. The last few songs just couldn't reach the same energy level. Listening to that song, confetti raining down, was so magical. And then they continued it, which just felt really awkward and uncomfortable. It's been 10 years, and some may say, let it go, lady. And to that I say, never. I won't stop. <laughs> Lost it. Uh, but I will also say, Journey put on a hell of a show. Yeah. So I'll say that. It was just a, it was an odd choice. Yeah. I never, it's the only show I've ever been to that did a confetti cannon mid-show. You can't come back from a confetti cannon unless you're going to come back with an even bigger confetti cannon. You know what I mean? Like, yes. And they had to know. That's that's your signature song. That's your ender. I feel like they were catering to the seniors who who like to hear the song and then they want to leave and beat the traffic. So they were like, we'll give them that's this and then they'll, you know what I mean? Oh, that's our problem. We were too young. We were too young. We were among the youngest in that crowd. Easily. Yeah. Easily. Which, I stand by it. It was a great time. What I like was that was a surreptitious side note. <laughs> I like, I like where whatever energy is coming today. I like. I don't know. Lot. I've got like one hair hanging down that doesn't really make sense on one side. You know what I mean? Like I just feel alive. Feel alive. Look, I also want you to know. Earlier, uh, this isn't going to make sense, but earlier, um, I when I also wrote down Vegas cheese mug. Yeah. I also wrote down gumption because I love how often the term has come up lately mm. because I love the word. And when you were talking about your shirt, I wrote down Allie's tallies. <laughs> <gasps> well, wow. Yep. You're welcome, world. <laughs> this is how my brain works. Yep. So back to the show. Yep. With the immense success of Chippendale's other club owners tried to get a piece of the pie by featuring male dancers of their own. Then in March 1984, one of those clubs, Moody's Discos, nearly burned down. 
Months later, the Red Onion restaurant and bar also nearly burnt down. Only minor damage was caused in both cases, but Banerjee decided to be proactive and beef up security at Chippendales. So who would want to burn down a club just for hosting male exotic dancers? Well, the answer is a lot of people. Religious groups were incredibly unhappy, believing the shows were the work of the devil. And people who lived or worked in the same area as these clubs were also unhappy. The clubs received constant complaints from people in the neighborhood. They would find empty liquor bottles and used condoms all over the ground. People were using their property as places to go to the bathroom or have sex. And so I get it. I'd be pissed too. I'd also probably move. But the negativity didn't seem to phase Chippendales as Nick and Banerjee were simply focused on taking Chippendales to the next level. Nick knew that one way to make that happen was to get the word out, so he made sure to get the press involved. The news was talking about Chippendales almost nightly, and my favorite news clip, um... The newscaster described Chippendales as, quote, a nightclub designed to delight women. And I was so tickled by his choice of the word delight. (laughs) I laughed for a very long time. That's just proof that I'm probably mentally unwell. Nick DeNoia was also interviewed constantly, taking some of the dancers with him on talk shows like Sally Jesse Raphael, Phil Donahue, and Joan Rivers. And of course... Nick would be the one to do interviews, as he was ridiculously charming, articulate, gregarious, while Steve Banerjee was private and quiet and had a bit of a stutter and also a fear of being in front of a camera. But since Nick was the only one being interviewed, he would repeatedly get called the founder of Chippendales, which enraged Banerjee. Anger and resentment were already building between Nick and Banerjee, and it was only made worse the more successful that Chippendales became. The animosity continued when it came to hiring the dancers. Nick's main concern was that the men were skilled dancers. But Banerjee didn't care about the dancing. He only hired men based on their level of attractiveness. And then he started hiring younger and younger and younger. Nick was frustrated with it all, so he decided it was time to take Chippendales on tour. The Los Angeles and New York clubs were called Chippendales. The tour was called the original Chippendales. Oh. After all, the napkin deal that Nick and Banerjee had signed years before gave Nick exclusive rights to a Chippendales tour. And not surprising, the tour was a huge success. The dancers were performing for crowds of 2,000 Every single night, the shows were all sold out. Nick and Banerjee split the profits from the tour 50-50, but when Nick would send money from the tour, it enraged Banerjee to see that the tour was bringing in more money than their Los Angeles location. And then Banerjee starts to get paranoid and thinks that Nick is stealing from him and not sending him his fair share. Things came to a head between the business partners and Nick stepped down as choreographer of the New York show so that he could manage the touring show. Banerjee then hired Steve Merritt to choreograph a new show for both clubs in L.A. and New York. And Merritt changed everything, including getting rid of all fan interactions. No more touching, no more kissing, which was part of what made Chippendales so popular. Nick was pissed. 
He felt Merritt was destroying his show, and that made Banerjee angry to hear Nick refer to Chippendales as Nick's show. But Nick truly believed that he was the sole reason that Chippendales was as successful as it was. And it was so successful that Nick was making crazy money. And because of the napkin deal that Nick and Banerjee had made in 1983, Nick had complete control over the tour, which caused more and more issues daily. According to Banerjee's lawyer, Bruce, quote, Steve was very unhappy because Nick was making so much money on tour. Steve thought Nick had stolen the tour from him. And the thing to that, Banerjee, is that as a businessman, you should have known better than to sign a deal without your lawyer present. Yeah. Especially because you were so tight with your lawyer. Your lawyer would have helped you out anyway. But it basically turned into a pissing contest between the two men, always trying to outdo one another. Banerjee tried a competing Chippendales tour through the southern United States, which enraged Nick as their deal agreed that Nick would have exclusive rights to a tour. So in 1987, Nick sued Banerjee for violating their agreement and creating his own Chippendales tour. But Banerjee wasn't the only one who was unhappy with Nick. For a guy that was usually liked by those around him, he became controlling, abrasive, pushy, a bully, and as one person put it, quote, a real dick. <laughs> Nick became difficult to work with, snapping at the dancers if they made any errors during rehearsals. On April 7th, 1987, 911 received a call from a building on West 40th Street. The caller said that a man in his office had been shot. When police and ambulance arrived, they went to Chippendales Universal on the 15th floor to find a man lying on the floor of an office with a bullet wound to his face. Nick DeNoia was dead. <gasps> Whoa! Yeah. I mean, there's already so much intrigue, and I feel like we're just getting into this. I mean, this is wild. Oh, we got a, we got a ways to go. <laughs> I mean, I just thought I've already, anytime something is wildly successful, but then bad things befall it, it makes me think of the Glee curse. If you haven't listened to it, check it out. It's a romp. Um, that's a bit that will yep. never, ever die. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, grab another drink, hit the can, and we're going to be talking all things Curse of the Chippendales when we come back on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. 
Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're talking, of course, Curse of the Chippendales. Christy pointed out in the break that Curse of the Chicken, but Chippendales, Glee Curse. It really is. It does. They do. There is some synergy there. So it's been miraculous. It took me that long. We've never done anything else. Yes. There's never any. I don't think we've done anything else with curse in it, have we? I don't think so. I don't don't know. You could could also be like, look, I'll pay you $1,000 for every single one of our episodes that you can name. It's a safe bet. You're keeping your money (laughs) We wouldn't be getting the full amount, I'll tell you that much. No, especially if you ask us to start from the beginning, to go from there to see how far we could go. Like, someday that's going to be a game if we, we play had, somewhere. If we had to do them in order, honest yeah. to God, I think I would tap out at, like, two. I'm like, I think I remember the order. I don't, don't, don't quote me, you know? Oh, we we tried, I think during maybe the first Hootenanny, we tried the game of or maybe it was even before that but we tried like a what's the order and we'd only done like 20 episodes and i missed multiple <laughs> you were like well th- we also did dateline i'm like dateline <laughs> yep yep well it's just my brain only has so much room yep exactly this week it's filled with g-string apparently <laughs> apparently that's Listen. That's what it is. That's what it is. All right. So Nick DeNoia found dead. Yeah. Bullet wound to the face. Ironically, also yeah. the way that Dorothy died. Bullet wound to the face, right? Yeah. Tell me what you know. Well, there's not a lot out there about Nick DeNoia, but I can tell you that Nicholas John DeNoia Jr. was born May 14th, 1941. He was the writer, director, and producer of eight children's shorts called Unicorn Tales. The episodes aired on NBC in 1977 and 1978, and each told a modern version of a fairy tale set in the fictional Unicorn City. Nick won two Emmy Awards for the show. He was briefly married to actress Jennifer O'Neill from 1975 to 76. Nick was described as vibrant, high-energy, charming, and the force behind Chippendales. He was 45 years old at the time of his death. In early 1987, the Chippendales tour was traveling around the East Coast. After a show in at, in Indianapolis at a club called Don't Ask, which <laughs> I, I love so much, yeah. uh, Nick decided he was going to leave the tour and head back to New York. He left choreographer and friend Candace Mayeron in charge of the tour. Will Mott, the only witness at the time of Nick's shooting, said that a Hispanic male, about 5'9", entered the office around 3.40 p.m. and asked, Are you Nick? Will said, I'm not. 
Nick's office is over there. And then uh, Will went to the bathroom when he heard a gunshot, followed by the exit door opening and closing. When he came out, he found Nick on the floor, so he called 911. Investigators found no evidence at the scene, no fingerprints or murder weapon, which they believed to be a larger caliber gun, possibly a forty-five. There was also no sign of a struggle. All the investigators had to go on was the description given by Will Mott and another description given by people who saw a man near the building that didn't seem like he should be there. The man was described as about 35 years old, five foot six, 145 pounds, wearing jeans and a brown jacket. Now, I know the investigators didn't have much to go on, but during the investigation, they didn't even contact anyone on the tour, such as the dancers or Candace, and you'd think that they'd want to talk to anyone who was close with Nick to try and determine who might have a grudge against him. Yes, but I'm not a cop, so I maybe I just don't know. I just like to play one. On a podcast. Of course. Like, I like to play a psychotherapist. I get it. Of course. Uh, Some, including Candace, immediately thought that Banerjee was responsible for Nick's death, especially with the intense animosity between them. But someone said that Steve Banerjee wasn't violent, and that no matter how much tension there was between the men, that Banerjee wasn't confrontational at all, to the point where someone had blackmailed him a few years before, and he paid the guy off. Mm. Unfortunately, I do not know what the guy was blackmailing Banerjee about, Mm. but I know that it was a frequent visitor to their club, and that after... Banerjee paid him off, he still allowed the guy to come to the club. And honestly, if someone blackmails me, their ass is banned from my club. But that's just cookies talking. And for the record, she wouldn't have paid for blackmail. No, that's not how she She'd be the blackmailer. She would not be the blackmailee. (laughs) Exactly. That's just how it works. But non-confrontational or not, Steve Banerjee didn't exactly look innocent. Friends and family of Nick's pooled their money together to be able to offer a reward for information on Nick's death. When lawyer Bruce asked Banerjee if he was adding money to the reward, Banerjee said, quote, Why would I give money when the guy did me a favor? Oh, boy. That's... And because Nick didn't have a will, everything went to his siblings, who sold Nick's rights to the Chippendale tour to Steve Banerjee for $1.3 million, which may seem like a lot, but at the time, the tour was raking in about 10 times that. Right. So, and Steve obviously knew what the tour was bringing in and what it was worth, but I'm impressed that they even got a million. I would have thought he would have tried to get it lower. Yeah. By 1988, the clubs in New York and Los Angeles were at full capacity every night, as were the new clubs in Denver and Dallas. And there were not one, but two tours through the United States and Canada. Banerjee felt that he had conquered America, so he took the tour overseas to France, Hong Kong, Australia, New Zealand, and the Philippines. In fact, the tours quickly became the most lucrative part of Chippendale's. 
Chippendales had become bigger than ever before, a true multi-million dollar empire. But the bigger they got, the more problems that popped up. They still received constant gender discrimination lawsuits because they refused to let men in to see the shows. And then they got into trouble for not allowing a man into the club when men were allowed. Apparently, men were allowed in the club after a certain time at night. And one man, Don Gibson, was refused entry. He was told it was because he wasn't dressed up enough. But after watching several men dressed lower down than he was, less fancy, however we want to say it, enter the club, Don believed he was denied entry because he was black. And it's not like Chippendales was exactly progressive at the time. Most of their dancers were white men, with only a single black dancer being part of the group at a given time. All of their calendars, all white men. They have changed dramatically since then. For the sake of this, I'm just speaking Chippendales in the 80s. Yes. Don Gibson filed a discrimination suit against Chippendales, and because of the ever-growing number of lawsuits towards the club, the Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control revoked their liquor license, and Chippendales was forced to close the Los Angeles club in 1988. Whoa! They moved to other clubs, but the venues were smaller, so the dancers were performing for 50 women as opposed to the, like, 500 that they were used to. Right. But even without the Los Angeles club, Chippendales was soaring. And how do you know when you've truly made it? When you're parodied on Saturday Night Live. Mm. In October 1990, Chris Farley and host Patrick Swayze performed the now iconic Chippendales sketch. It is, to this day, one of my favorite things that SNL has ever done. So imagine my surprise when I was looking it up for my research, and I found that people blamed the sketch for adding to Chris Farley's self-destructive behavior. Some people claimed the sketch proved that Farley had no respect for himself and that the sketch was the first step in killing him. Now, I'm no expert, so this is my opinion. Of course. Chris Farley was a goddamn comedic genius, and he is so fucking funny in that sketch and not only that he was nimble and his dance moves were on point some people can just never accept the idea of someone being self-deprecating in comedy unfortunately yes farley got into hard drugs and partying and it eventually caught up with him but i do not believe for one second that it had anything to do with that chippendale sketch again i'm not an expert So take my opinion with a grain of salt. But just know, both Swayze and Farley are on Blanche's list. And I'll say this, the same. (laughs) (laughs) He was just so funny that, I mean, that's, sometimes people can laugh at themselves without putting themselves down. And I just felt like that was so funny. Again, I don't think they've ever topped it since then because I loved it so much. With the popularity of Chippendale's touring continuing to grow, Steve Banerjee put all of his efforts into Chippendale's as a solely touring review. 
but after Nick's death, a lot of the dancers felt the electricity was gone, and Chippendales wasn't the only thing to change in the late 80s, early 90s. According to those who knew him, Steve Banerjee went from a happy-go-lucky, pleasant guy to angry, stressed, and regularly using cocaine. Mm. And when other male dance troops started popping up across the country, Banerjee was livid. While he had control over the Chippendales' name, he didn't have copyright on the idea of male exotic dancers. The first major competition that Chippendales had was a 16-man group called Adonis. In Greek mythology, Adonis was the mortal lover of the goddess Aphrodite. The story goes that Adonis was killed by a wild boar during a hunting trip and died in Aphrodite's arms as she cried. His blood mixed with her tears, and they became the anemone flower. I don't know why I've always been so tickled by mythology, but... I love it. There we go. Uh, Something else about Adonis that probably angered Steve Banerjee was the fact that the group was started by former Chippendales dancers, including Steve White and choreographer Mike Fullington. They also hired... uh, former Chippendales dancer Reed Scott to be their MC in June 1991. Now, I have to get this out of the way about Reed Scott. In the documentary, he said he worked for Chippendales. He was told his body was nice, but that his face wasn't attractive enough to be a headliner, so he was relegated to be a background dancer, as opposed to one of the fancy character dancers. Banerjee once told Reed, quote, you're a very good performer, Reed, but you're not a looker. Oh. And listen, I don't know exactly what his specific standards were, but Blanche personally thought that Reed was very attractive, face and all. And I was angry that he was told otherwise. So I was very happy. Hashtag that he went elsewhere. Justice for his face. Yes. And. I spent so much time, every time the name Reed came up in my head, I I finished it with Reed Lowe. I was like, it's not Reed Lowe. You're talking about Reed Scott. It's a different person. Stop it. And then my, I'm getting my crushes mixed up. (laughs) Yeah. Is, is the problem. Well, there's, there's many. It's over 200. (laughs) Well, we we may be pushing three hundo now. Let's get real. I'm, I'm for one. Thank you for hundo. Two, I'm terrified to think of what the number could be now. And I'm even more scared to think of what that number could be in December. (laughs) I don't know how often we check in so that it won't make me pass out when I learn. Um, So the competition started calling dancers from Chippendales to try and convince them to jump ship. And so Adonis would call and be like, hey, come be with Adonis. We're way better. And you know that Banerjee is not going to accept that. In July 1991, members of Adonis were on tour in Europe, and Reed Scott went along as MC. One night at the beginning of a show, just as Reed had taken the microphone at the Winter Gardens in Blackpool, England, he was stopped mid-sentence by his business partner, who said that Scotland Yard officers were waiting for him. Reed left the stage immediately and was taken to another room where the officers told him, quote, We've been notified that there is a plot that men have been sent over here 
to assassinate you. What? Yeah. And if that wasn't terrifying enough, the officers said the men were planning on using a cyanide injection to kill Reed, so it meant someone is going to try and get close enough to inject him with a needle. Oh my god. And how did the police learn about the crime in advance? Well, to get into that, we need to bring in a man turned informant who goes by the name Strawberry. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I assume it was a nickname that stemmed from the fact that he appeared to be a redhead in his youth. Okay. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was just his favorite jam. Maybe it was just because he's a sweet guy. I don't know. I believe his real name was Lynn Bressler. But honestly, (laughs) I prefer Strawberry, and that's what I stuck with. I like it. Strawberry! It's, It's one of those things where I'm like, yeah... I get it. I should have picked my own nickname years ago. I assume he picked it himself. It just made me laugh a lot. I like it. So the story goes that Strawberry met Augustine Ralph Angel Cologne, better known as Ray Cologne, at a bar. Ray was a likable guy who told a lot of stories, such as the time he set a dance club on fire. But Ray was the type of guy who you couldn't tell if he was bullshitting you or not. So Strawberry becomes friends with Ray. And one day, Ray says he has a job for Strawberry. Ray wanted Strawberry to fly to England, find three guys, specifically Reed Scott, Steve White, and Mike Fullington, wait until they're in a crowd, inject them with poison, and then fly back home. Ray offered him $25,000 for the job. Whoa! (coughs) And Strawberry claims he was against it right away. But for the sake of his own safety, he agreed to do the job. Right. He thought, okay, I'm gonna, I'll tell him I'm going. I'm just not going to get on the plane. But Ray drove Strawberry to the airport. God. And even went right to the gate with him. So Strawberry begrudgingly flew to London on July 12th. He threw the cyanide and syringes into a trash can at an airport bathroom before getting on a flight back to the United States and heading to Las Vegas. Strawberry went directly to the FBI and told them the entire story. So the FBI had Strawberry call Ray while they secretly recorded it, and Ray admitted to the entire thing. Strawberry got put into witness protection, and the FBI executed a search warrant at Ray Cologne's house. While there, they found a canvas bag that contained 46 grams of cyanide, which is enough to kill 230 people. Whoa! Because apparently with cyanide, you only need an eyedropper worth to kill a person, which is horrifying to think about. I was going to Google more about it. Uh, But then I decided I didn't want it in my search history in case my husband ever dies (laughs) under mysterious circumstances. But then I worried that the dear listeners would be disappointed at the thought that I didn't give it my all. So this means I am bringing you a cyanide is terrifying side note. (laughs) (laughs) The great news is that cyanide is released from natural substances in certain foods and plants such as lima beans and almonds, or pits and seeds from apples, peaches, and apricots. I don't know about you, but I sure feel better knowing how readily available it is. (laughs) I will admit 
I fully laughed at the specific quote from the CDC. Quote, The edible parts of these plants contain much lower amounts of these chemicals. Yeah, we really hope and we really, really hope so. <laughs> Humankind has existed on that for some time. For some time. Yeah, it's it's upsetting. It's upsetting. Um, in the world of manufacturing, cyanide is used to make plastics, paper, and textiles. And apparently one of the major sources of cyanide exposure for people who don't work in a cyanide-related industry is smoking cigarettes. Another big one is house fires. Because of all the stuff that's burning, you're oh, inhaling the smoke. Right. Uh, for me, I think the most terrifying part of cyanide is that it comes in so many different forms. Uh, I should also say quickly, I realize that just like somebody at home isn't going to easily make cyanide from lima beans, I know that there's probably a process, but I bet the internet could tell them and that's where I'm, that's where the terror comes in. Yeah. So, cyanide. So many different forms. Cyanide pills, like you see in movies where a spy quickly swallows a pill when he gets caught. It seems like a quick and painless death, but it burns the stomach and prevents the body from using oxygen. So while it may seem quick and easy, it's actually quite painful. Oh my god. In fact, I read it can take up to 10 minutes for someone to die from ingesting cyanide, and the victim remains conscious the entire time, which feels horrifying. Yeah. But keep horrifying in mind, because we're going to keep going. The liquid form of cyanide can be injected or simply added to, it, added to a flavored drink, like what cult leader Jim Jones used to kill 907 of his followers at their Jonestown settlement in November 1978. Some followers willingly drank it. Others were forced to do so at gunpoint. The most har harmful form of cyanide, though, is cyanide gas. It was famously used by the Nazis during World War II, and in May 2021, Florence State Prison in Arizona decided to refurbish the gas chamber that was built in 1949 with plans to use cyanide gas as a form of execution moving forward. The last time a prisoner was killed in that gas chamber was Walter Legrand in 1999, Legrand was sentenced to death in 1982 after an armed robbery left one man dead. Witnesses to Legrand's execution described it as agonizing choking oh. and that it took 18 minutes for him to die. God. But prisoners in Arizona will be given a choice. So if they don't want the gas chamber, they can opt for the lethal injection. But the last time that a prisoner was given a lethal injection in Arizona was Joseph Wood in July 2014. For the sake of background, Wood murdered his former girlfriend and her father in 1989. And to call Wood's death botched would be an understatement. The prison used a combination of drugs that turned out to be the wrong ones. And in the end, it took Wood one hour and 58 minutes to die. Oh my god. One witness said that he watched Wood gasp and gulp 660 times. Because of how badly Wood's death was handled, the death penalty was suspended in Arizona. Until now. 
They're ready to get back at it, and they've selected two inmates out of the 115 people who are currently in their death row population. The two specific inmates include a man who killed an eight-year-old girl in 1984 and another who killed a college student in 1978. I don't know when they will have things back up and running or why they've decided that it was time to do it again, but as of late January 2022, Joseph Wood is still the last person to be executed in the state of Arizona. He was the 37th inmate to be executed in the state and the 35th to die by lethal injection. Aside from Walter Legrand in 1999, the only other Arizona inmate to die via the gas chamber was Donald Harding in April 1992, and witnesses say his death took 11 minutes and was, quote, particularly gruesome. Harding was the first inmate to be executed in the state. And now that we're all good and horrified, back to Chippendale. <laughs> <laughs> Feels right. This uh, this is this is what this show is. It I lo- takes. I love it. There I are crests it. and troughs. Yep. And see, I have to bring that up because it is literally the only thing that I remember from physics is crests and troughs. Nope. I also remember concave and convex. So look at you. I know. I know he'll never. Rem- I know he'll never hear this. But to Mister Wingert. I'm doing my best, man. <laughs> Look, doing my best. Mr. Wingard got through. Some of it got through. Yeah. Four words, but I know what they mean. That's and the, that's, that's the, the thing. Part. And that's the thing. <sighs> so, August 27th, 1991. 46-year-old Ray Cologne and his 31-year-old brother-in-law, William Nelson Barnes Jr., were charged with conspiracy and with using long-distance phone lines to arrange a murder for hire. Now, this is the first time that I had heard about Ray's brother-in-law being involved. It turns out he was the researcher of the operation. Barnes traveled to London to do a little recon on Adonis, giving Ray and Strawberry info on where the Adonis dancers were staying, their schedule. Barnes also included maps in his info, which I appreciate. I know he was trying to help with a murder, so I don't respect that part. But I respect that he was thorough. Yes. (laughs) And so I was impressed by that. Uh, Prior to this incident, Ray Cologne worked as a reserve officer, spent some time in the U.S. Air Force, and by the mid-1980s had become a qualified diving instructor. After a DUI, Ray was fired and tried to make a career as a TV writer, although I don't believe that worked out for him at all. Yeah. After his arrest, Ray sat in jail for about seven months before telling police that he was willing to cooperate. Ray then admitted to the entire plot, and said that it was one of the jobs that he was hired to do by Chippendale's founder, Steve Banerjee. Whoa. The authorities, of course, were interested in what other kind of jobs that Banerjee had hired Ray for. So, for the sake of getting a reduced sentence for the murder-for-hire plot, Ray became an informant and told the police everything. Ray admitted that Banerjee had hired him in 1984 to firebomb some clubs in Santa Monica and Marina del Rey. 
When police checked their reports on the fires, it corroborated all the details that Ray gave. Wow. But the police wanted to get Banerjee on something bigger than arson. So they pushed for more from Ray, and he admitted that in 1987, Steve Banerjee hired Ray to murder Nick DeNoia. Ray said that he contacted a man named Gilberto Lopez Rivera, who was known as Louie, and offered him $25,000 to help kill someone. But by the time the police learned this information, in 1991, Louis was incarcerated at a California state prison on an unrelated drug charge. So the FBI create this ruse that Ray needs special treatment for an undisclosed terminal kidney issue. And that gets him released from prison. First, Ray is sent to visit Louis in prison while wearing a wire. Ray told Louis he was planning on extorting the man who had hired him. And Louis admitted everything, including the exact spot where the bullet entered Nick DeNoia with the specific detail that it was like right by the nose, police knew they had their shooter, who also happened to match the description that the witness Will Mott had given. Wow. But the word of a criminal is not enough to build a case against Banerjee, so investigators needed to get some actual evidence. Ray then agreed to wear a wire again, but this time while talking to Banerjee in hopes of getting him to admit to the crime on tape. Ray approached Banerjee and said he needed money for a lawyer. Banerjee said he'd leave him a package in a very specific location. But Banerjee had become very paranoid at this point. He refused to say any more. When police arrived at the specific location, there was a package containing $14,000. But again, it's not the evidence the investigators needed. So Ray made arrangements to meet Banerjee again, June 23, 1992, at an IHOP in Santa Monica. But Banerjee knew that Ray had been arrested, so he was skeptical of the fact that Ray had magically been released. So when they got to the restaurant, Banerjee made them both go to the bathroom where he told Ray to strip to his boxers so he could check and make sure he wasn't wearing a wire. What? That pesky FBI. Prior to the meeting, they had an Italian tailor create a flap in the boxer shorts to hide a micro cassette recorder. So Banerjee's paranoia was right, but the FBI was a step ahead. Unfortunately, nothing incriminating was said at the meeting. Banerjee said that he would speak more openly with Ray if they did so overseas. And that may seem like an odd request, but since Ray was arrested in the whole pesky murder-for-hire plot, it means that if Ray traveled outside of the United States, he'd be a fugitive. So Banerjee was betting on Ray not wanting to get caught, so Ray and members of the FBI flew to Rome in February 1993, where they planned to get an apartment— wire it from top to bottom, and hopefully record Banerjee admitting to hiring Ray to kill Nick. And I will say, they took photos of them, like, not like, oh, God, I hope they took, like, scenic photos of them, like, in front of the Coliseum or something. But they took photos of them, like, him, Ray in the middle, cops on either side, like, before they're going to get on a plane. Like, buddy, it was... 
it was like they were heading on a bachelor party or something. Like it was just a weird, like, okay, guys, here's our before shot. Like I, the idea of that photo being taken, I it just made me laugh a lot. Yeah. And I really hope there are some scenic shots in there somewhere. When Ray gets to Italy, he calls Banerjee and asks him to come to Italy. But Banerjee says he can't. He's currently in Amsterdam, but he can't leave because he's not legally a U.S. citizen, so it's difficult for him to fly certain places. Banerjee says he could get to Zurich, Switzerland, but that's as far as he can safely travel. And my question to the FBI is, why didn't you find out what part of Europe Banerjee was in before you planned this big sting in Rome? <laughs> was he ever in Rome? Why did you choose Rome? I have a lot of questions. But the FBI is determined to get Banerjee. So they fly Ray to Zurich. They wire up Ray's hotel room and place agents in rooms on either side of him. But when Ray calls Banerjee to suggest a meeting, Banerjee refuses to come to the hotel. So they meet at a coffee shop. But Ray removes his coat, which has the microphone in it, so agents can't hear anything. So they move to a bar. But the background noise is so loud that the agents still can't hear anything. So finally, after repeated issues, Banerjee finally agrees to go to Ray's hotel room. And finally, the FBI's work pays off. After a nearly three to four hour long conversation, Banerjee asks Ray if the FBI mentioned anything, quote, about the D. Apparently, the D was the code word that Banerjee and Ray used when they spoke about Nick DeNoya. Then Banerjee said, quote, do they know I gave you the money to buy the guns? And yes, in fact, the FBI did know that Banerjee had given Ray $500 that he used to buy guns that were used in the murder. And apparently that was all the information they needed, and Steve Banerjee was arrested September 2nd, 1993. He was officially indicted on seven counts, including violating RICO laws through racketeering activity, such as murder, arson, and solici solicitation to commit murder. Racketeering side note! Oh. Just to get us all on the same page. Racketeering is basically when a business or its activities are being conducted in an illegal manner. In some cases, the entire business is illegal, such as like drug trafficking. And in some cases, it's only certain activities that are illegal, like money laundering. Racketeering is often associated with the mob. In 1970, Congress passed the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, or RICO Act, making it illegal to acquire, operate, or receive income from an enterprise through racketeering. Examples of racketeering under the RICO Act include murder, kidnapping, robbery, bribery, extortion, gambling, arson, or dealing in narcotics. If convicted... Banerjee would face up to 55 years in prison and a fine of up to $1.5 million, Whoa. which is equivalent to about $2.8 million in 2022. On July 29, 1994, Banerjee agreed to a plea deal 
in which he pleaded guilty to the racketeering charges, which included orchestrating the murder of his former business partner and attempted arson of the Red Onion in Marina del Rey. In the deal, Banerjee would have to forfeit his interest in Chippendale's parent company, Eastby Enterprises, Inc., but the Adonis murder-for-hire charges would be dropped. Because of the plea, Banerjee was looking at 26 years in prison, as opposed to 55, but his official sentence date wasn't until October 24th, 1994. But the day before, on October 23rd, shortly before 4 a.m., prison guards found Steve Banerjee dead in his cell. No! He hung himself with a bedsheet. A note was allegedly found in his cell written in an Indian language that the guards could not decipher. He was 48 years old. Ray Cologne claimed that while in Switzerland, Banerjee told him that if he were to get caught, he would either leave the country or kill himself. Ray further claimed that Banerjee said he would pay a pilot $25,000 to get him out of the country, where he'd return to India and would, quote, get a new wife and new kids. And of all the things that man may or may not have done, I really hope that he never truly said that. What a horrifying thing that your children might one day hear. Yeah, that's bad. But really, it comes down to how much do we trust Ray? Apparently, he told the authorities this when Banerjee was first arrested. So I don't know what the point would be in making it up. It also should be noted that throughout his time in prison, Banerjee was being treated for depression. After Banerjee's death, ownership of Chippendales transferred to his wife, Irene. I don't know how all that worked, as he had signed away his rights to the Chippendale parent company as part of the plea deal. I don't know if it's coming to me now. Is it possible because of his death, the deal was off and his wife got to keep the company? Probably. But Irene gained ownership in 1994. Sadly, Irene passed away from breast cancer in 2001, mm. after which the couple's two children were sent to live in Buffalo, New York with Irene's sister. Christian Banerjee, Steve's son, who was only three or four years old when his father died, claims that his father signed Chippendales over to the FBI. But I couldn't find any proof of that. But then again, they're the FBI, so I shouldn't find any proof of that? And now I sound like a conspiracy nut, and I'm okay with that because I'm convinced that's just who I am now. Mm -hmm. Christian also believes, despite the alleged suicide note, that his father was murdered. Oh. He also believes that his father was framed for his crimes and that he only pleaded guilty because he had no other options. And I'd love to say that Steve Banerjee was innocent. But he outright confessed to hiring a hitman at least twice. So it's hard for me to believe that he was innocent. Yeah. And while I can see where Christian is coming from, I can't help but feel like it doesn't make sense for anyone else to kill Nick Denoya. Who benefited the most from Nick's death? Probably the man who was in business with him. The same man who bought all of Nick's interest in the company right after his death. From what I can tell, the Banerjee family seemed to believe that someone in organized crime 
was responsible for Nick's death. Interesting. But again, I ask who benefited the most from Nick's death. I couldn't find any mob links to the case, but of course that doesn't mean that there aren't any. Maybe buried deep somewhere there is mob involvement, because Lord knows that cookie would cookies would absolutely be involved in male strip clubs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But despite how people claimed that Banerjee changed over the years, most still felt that he was intelligent and creative with a tireless work effort and a love of all things American. He was described as a self-made man who was passionate and hardworking. The website set up by his estate says that Banerjee was the life of the party and outgoing. But most people in the documentary said he was shy and quiet. So I don't really know which one to believe. That's interesting. The website, which is stevebanerjee.com, uh, claims that their current goal is, quote, to clear Steve's name and set the record straight on the events surrounding his dubious murder trial and questionable suicide the day before he was set to receive sentencing. Banerjee's estate has also secured a film development deal with a major Bollywood film studio to produce a movie about the real story of Steve Banerjee. And of course they did, because Banerjee's story is fascinating. After all, it has already been the subject of two movies. There was a TV movie called The Chippendale Murders, which starred Naveen Andrews as Banerjee in 2000, and a 2002 movie called Just Can't Get Enough, starring Shelley Malil. And in 2009, director Tony Scott was reportedly working on a film about Banerjee at the time of his own death. Oh. He, he was working on one specific... He had plans to work on it, yeah. I guess is what I meant. As of January 2022, there are currently two Chippendale projects in pre-production in Hollywood. One is a movie which stars Dev Patel as Steve Banerjee with Seth Rogen and Elle Fanning. The other is a drama series for Hulu with Banerjee being portrayed by Kumal Nanjiani, who I love. I, we recently watched The Big Sick. Uh, him and Stuber fucking cracks me up. Uh, but before we go, I wanted to give some updates on a few people. I just mentioned him moments ago, but Banerjee's son, Christian, believes that family members, specifically the aunt and uncle who raised him, stole money that rightfully belonged to him and his sister. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. He has no proof of this. I don't have financial records to go through to look for proof. It's his w word over theirs, I suppose. Right. He still gets together with lawyer Bruce Naheen, who is Christian's godfather. Oh, that's nice. Which I actually thought was very sweet. Uh, Christian briefly ran a nutrition store, but also worked as a personal trainer and a mover. Just prior to the pandemic in 2020, he started working as an exotic dancer. Now to pay the bills, he dances, appears in porn, uses the occasional sugar mama, and according to Christian himself, sells various sexual services. Huh. Didn't mm -hmm. see that coming, to be honest yep. with you. He currently dances under the name Bane Diesel for a company called Honkomania, <laughs> which was created in 1998 
by a former Chippendales dancer. There it is. Christian's dream is to start his own version of Chippendales called Strippendales. That's clever. Steve Banerjee also had a daughter in 1985, but I could not find any information on her. Continuing with the updates, Ray Cologne pleaded guilty to conspiracy and murder for hire and faced up to 15 years in prison. But with his work as an informant, his sentence was reduced to two and a half years. Plus, he got to see Europe. (laughs) (laughs) He was released in June 1996, where he briefly lived under house arrest. But nothing is known about his whereabouts after that. I tried Googling the name Ray Cologne when I came across a 52-year-old man with the same name who shot and killed his wife multiple times in their driveway in December 2018. Despite numerous witnesses seeing him and his wife being on the phone with 911 at the time of the shooting, Ray still pleaded not guilty. In April 2019, he was indicted on one count of first-degree premeditated murder, And at first, I thought it was the same guy because he had a similar vibe, but the ages don't line up. So I feel like it's probably just another weird synchronicity that continues to happen on this show. Ray's brother-in-law, William Barnes, served 51 months for his role in the murder for hire plot. There is no word as to what he's been up to since. Ray's trigger man, Louis, was convicted of second-degree murder for the death of Nick DeNoya. Louis was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Magique, which used to host Chippendale's shows during their heyday in New York, was torn down. And as of January 2022, it is now a bed, bath, and beyond. Oh, my God. (laughs) The Los Angeles Chippendale's is now an adult daycare center called Sunny Day's Adult Day Healthcare. And what about Chippendales as a company? What happened to that? Well, after Banerjee's death, Chippendales was briefly purchased by Lou Pearlman, known better as the manager of NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys. Pearlman planned to turn the Chippendales into a boy band. Oh, wow. But rumor has it that he grew bored with the idea and moved on. In 2000, a group of investors, including Kevin Denberg, bought the Chippendales and got it back up and running with a new show in a clubhouse on the West Side Highway in New York. It was back to business as usual until the terrorist attack on September 11, 2001. After that, the interest in gyrating men declined in the Big Apple, so Denberg rented a bus and took the dancers on the road. They performed at casinos in Ohio, Iowa, South Dakota, and Nebraska until finally planting roots in Las Vegas, Nevada. In 2005, they opened their own 21,000-square-foot entertainment complex for women, situated inside the Rio Hotel. It features a hotel or a theater, a boutique, and a flirt lounge? where they offer one-on-one time with the dancers. I can't look further into Flirt Lounge. It's I, it's much more innocent than it sounds. Okay, because it sounds pretty bad. 
Yeah, it's it's not. They're trying to make it sound like it's like a champagne room and no. It's not. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I like when something turns out to be more innocent than I thought. Unless it's different than, but I believe I was in the flirt lounge and I was, yeah, I, I did not, yeah, no. I mean, again, unless, again, maybe I'm mistaking, but no, I think it's more innocent. Well, what I'm hearing is we need a trip for research. It's for the show. It's research. <laughs> I, oh, God, I don't know if I could handle it. Uh, the Chippendales Empire still includes the yearly calendars as well as a European traveling show, but the majority of its revenue comes from the Vegas show. When Magic Mike hit the big screen in 2012, it sent business booming again. And no, I don't know why it took me nine years to see Magic Mike. I can't answer that. Magic Mike Live started in Vegas in 2017 and currently runs at the Sahara. And if my nine-year track record stands, I guess I'll be seeing that live show in 2026. In 2015, breathtaking model Tyson Beckford joined Chippendales as a celebrity guest star for two sold-out shows. It was such a huge hit that he returned for a series of shows in 2017. And despite competitors such as Magic Mike Live or Thunder from Down Under, Chippendales continues to stay on top. Chippendales has been awarded Best Male Review consecutively since 2012. And in 2018, they won Best Bachelorette Party Destination in Vegas. At the height of its success, Chippendales grossed an estimated $35 million a year and it is clearly still one of the most successful women's entertainment brands of all time. Today, the Chippendales Vegas Rio location runs shows every night of the week, hosting millions of women each year, and their touring show is featured in over 25 countries on six continents. And yet somehow, with all that availability, Blanche has never seen it. It seems impossible, I know, and maybe part of Blanche's charm is the fact that at her core, she will always be an enigma. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Christy Oxborough. Wow, what a wild ride. <laughs> Listen, let's take one more break. I need to hit the can again. Open one of these cans. I'm so sorry. And then we're going to wrap it up with our final thoughts on uh, the Chippendales curse, curse of the Chippendales, on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Of course, we're talking Curse of the Chippendales. Oh, my God, so many things. I mean, what a wild story, more than anything. Oh, yeah. Just wild. Um, Top to bottom. No wonder there's so many movies being made about it, et cetera, because it just feels very compelling. Um, All right. I'm going to go through my notes as quickly as I can. Backgammon. Yeah, that was, uh, first of all, great joke. And second of all, what? Um, Two, I love this... uh, this Schneider character was like, Paul Ugh. Schneider was like, I saw a gay male review in Canada and I think that, that women might like it. What's your story, Paul? You know what I mean? Like you're going into Dairy Queens and soliciting young teens to d- do nude photo shoots. You're also frequenting, I don't know frequenting, but you're you're attending gay, gay male strip reviews. And listen, I'm no prude and I'm not suggesting that, that sexuality or gender needs to be a binary or on a, you know, it's all on a spectrum. I fully believe that to the core of my being. But what's your story, Paul? It was the 70s. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, you would think he'd be more open about it. Yeah, like. The 70s. Yeah, or yeah, like it, I don't know, that there's just, there was. There was something about that that just, I don't know. There was something about that, like, I was like, hmm, there's there's more to this guy that we don't know. But then, of course, we know what he went on to do. So then I was like, well, who cares, you dick? Um, Thank you. You're welcome. Adult Disney. Now, I don't mean adult like triple X adult, but I mean adult as in, like, adult themes. Like, that sounds like a dream for me. You know what I mean? Like, Sure. You know, come. where are you going, Peaches? She was eating at my feet, and now she's going, are you going somewhere to pee? I guess I'll find out when this is over. Um, Sharky, (laughs) he's in the bowl of food. This is, this is it, guys. Okay, anyway, so sorry. But yeah, Adult Disney, like somewhere where it's like, get loaded and ride the teacups. But then when I started thinking about it more, I'm like, that's kind of what Disney is already for me. So maybe I just need to (laughs) shut my lips. Um... (laughs) Shout out Colleen Camp from my favorite oh. movie of all time. One of my favorite movies of all time. Clue, my favorite comedy of all time. Uh, so funny. What a treasure. Um, he bought the gun from a classified ad. I don't have enough time to talk about what that means to me because a woman yep. died because he was able to do that. That's all I'm saying. Um, yeah. Also, of- uh, oh, yeah. Boo to the P.I., he was repeatedly looking to buy a gun. Yeah, after you and were hired to find out whether or not his wife was cheating. I do feel like, don't you have some sort of obligation to report that? I guess not. I guess not. Yeah. Um, Brian Adams and Red Hot Chili Peppers, I don't think I've ever heard mentioned as a couplet before. But then I was like, <laughs> that's a mashup I'd like to see. Also, shout out to the Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, members of which appeared in one of my favorite films of all time, a point break. <laughs> <laughs> well, this episode just writes itself. It really, yeah, really does. Um, uh, yes. Okay. So many things. I'm just going through here. Um, shout out to Brooke Shields. There's so many good ones. I mean, she was yeah. a, a guest star in an episode of Super Fun Night that I was yeah. in, and she 
was lovely. Just that's nice. The the kindest, nicest, most encouraging. Oh, it was just it was a oh a wonderful experience. She was lovely. A nightclub designed to delight women. I loved that too, and I wrote it down because I w- I had this vision of you sitting in the middle of a club watching whatever. Like this is the commercial, right? It's like you alone, yeah. all these men performing. You're wearing glasses, and then you just turn to the camera, lower them, and go delightful. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the pitch. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, here's a synchronicity that I picked up on. Oh. Um, Nick DeNoia yeah. shot in the face. My God. Also, as I mentioned in the moment, much like Dorothy was shot in the face, I'll yeah. also point out he wrote and won Emmys for that kids series called Unicorn Tales. And Dorothy, Peter... Uh, Rogdanovich or whatever his name is wrote that yeah. book in which Unicorn was in the title. It was? That's great wild. catch. Right? Oh, I'm so impressed with your notes. Listen, uh, once I started putting them in a book, it's been a lot easier to get through them. Uh, a, lot, a lot more cogent. Um, when, the, when the book is full, are you just going to like throw it out? Come on. Okay. No. This is I a treasure. This is no, one I- of my treasures. You know what I mean? <laughs> I got it, Ariel. This this is actually um, – thank you very much for that. This is actually – it's in my bad bitch notebook with peaches on it. Uh, of course we're selling. It is. Um, I think you can still get these on the merch store, truecrewmerch.com. Anyway, what this has become is everything that I've done so far this year is in this book. So every meeting I've taken, anything that I've taken notes is in this book. And then I was like, that's going to be a great way to look back on the year because – or however yes. long this takes because then it's literally everything, which I thought was smart. Yes. If I lose this, that's going to be – well, that's a whole other conversation, but uh, yeah. I'm not going to lose it. I'm not going to lose it. So there you go. Um, <laughs> I started concocting a story that Will Mott had committed <laughs> committed Nick DeNoia's murder. I'm like, we're just trusting this man who conveniently went to the bathroom when the murder oh, happened. And then yeah. the, the, pe- the people who saw the potential suspect said he didn't look like he should be there. And we knew that he was not a white person, which felt like it was like you're just basing this description on, I don't know, pure racism uh and then so then when it came out later that it was like oh no it it really did it was they were telling the truth i was like oh well yeah. i had i had concocted an entire theory that is now worthless but that's why i still oh. chose to share it um, same now you talked about how in the 90s uh banerjee got angry that you know he couldn't stop the competition because he couldn't copyright the concept right and to that i say and this is a Laura needs to circumflect on the art of male strip reviews. Side note. I'm doing a side note in the reading of my notes. What? I like it. Here's the beauty of what makes male strip reviews special. And what it is, is that each one is unique. So he need not have panicked that competition had arose because as yeah. someone who has seen Magic Mike, Chippendales, and a show called Aussie Hunks, I can tell you that each one of those shows was wildly different, a completely different experience, left you walking away with a different feeling than, than the other two. And it makes me more than anything excited to see Thunder from Down Under because I'm like, what's the difference with that one? I think it, it's unfortunate that he couldn't have se- foreseen that that actually the competition is 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 wonderful because you can't even compare them. Like 
Comparing Chippendales to the Magic Mike show is even difficult for me because it's such a different experience. Okay. And I like that I wanted Chippendales to be classier. Well, Magic Mike, I think, is quite classy. Um, I've also seen the Magic Mike show more than one time. I've really revealed a lot in the past three minutes, but I also like that I use the term circumflect when uh, in talking about comparing mad- male strip reviews. The point is, um, I've also been someone who has been to a male strip club, and that's a completely different uh, experience as well. <laughs> so all of this is to say is that variety is the spice of life. And if you've seen one of them, don't think you've seen all of them. Dip a toe. Dip a finger. If they'll let you. <laughs> Yep. I'm kidding. Yep. I like Please don't everywhere. touch the performers. Don't touch the performers. I am not I am not endorsing that. I am not endorsing that you touch uh, any performers. Uh, got to be got to be clear on that. Um okay, I'm ba- back to the notes. Um cyanide in peaches. I wrote down much like my dog peaches, very sweet, but if pushed can kill you. <laughs> that feels <laughs> right. At, laughing at my own joke. Um what else do I have here? Have you ever been to an IHOP? That was something I needed to ask. Me? Yeah. No. Yeah, put it on the list. They've oh. got like a boysenberry syrup or it's some other flavored syrup that you can't get anywhere else or at least I've never had anywhere else. And it was, I mean, it's nice. Top notch. Oh. Top okay. notch. Yes. Um, I also love that, that that was made it to my notes. Make sure you ask her if she's been to IHOP. <laughs> Um, so, uh, the next is, I like that the FBI was like, we have to fake a terminal kidney illness to get this Ray guy out of prison. How specific. But then I'm like, that's the FBI. If they're nothing else, they're creative. Which again, makes me feel like I really could have been a profiler in another life. Oh, yeah. Or maybe later in this one. I was going to say, you've got so much life left. Well. Do you really think at some point you're not going to go, I want to take a step back? I mean, get into some other work. For all everybody knows, maybe I already am one. I wouldn't be making that joke if I was. Or would I be hiding in plain sight? (laughs) (laughs) I'm off the rails. Um, Okay, what's next? What have I got next? Uh, Okay. Uh, Hunkamania is a 12 out of 10 for me. That is... That's everything I want in a in a male strip performers review. sure male review performers I don't know again anybody's name really um and then the final thought and I love that I was like this is important to note when I did go to see this the Chippendale show in Vegas uh, they do have a little uh, shop there and one of the items I purchased and I will try and find this photo to post to our social medias uh, was a dog T-shirt and on it it says Chippen Dog. And I bought that for my young my young uh, son Fox, uh, and gosh, does he look cute in it? I gotta try. I gotta put that on him. If nothing else, you know what? If I can't find the photo, I'll take a new one because good good God, that is a it's a travesty that he isn't wearing that all the time. Um, but you know, again, I just think it's interesting. Um, the other the only other thing I wanted to comment on on a more you know on a less light note was it, it it's so much death it in and, and and you know to be connected to one thing it, jokes aside and I I'm not being facetious much like the glee curse when you when you got into it and we're talking about how much death and and all of that kind of like dark energy was surrounding something that was so popular and it's so interesting cuz this was so popular seemingly kind of out of nowhere 
it's just interesting to me that um, those kinds of energetic things happen and it, it feels like it just can't be a coincidence. And, and that might be me, my own personal, you know, always looking for meaning in things uh, mindset. But it it is interesting, this additional, you know, his son being being like he was framed, he didn't kill himself. And the idea that perhaps organized crime was involved. Not that I am suggesting that I think that is the case, but the only other thing other than potentially signing a deal with the devil, which, as you know, is, of course, where I went in the Glee curse that was like, in order for you to have this massive success, what you didn't realize was it was going to come along with all of this terrible negative energy and darkness and death. Um, The only other thing I thought was, is there a world in which he was in with the you know some sort of mafia mob organized crime situation and that was his impetus for needing more money for for needing Nick Denoya to kind of go away like is it possible that both could be true do you know what i mean that it's like yeah. yes he was he had an active interest in getting rid of Nick Denoya but it could have been in trying to continue to finance um you know whatever this this organized crime connection could be much like we know he was blackmailed and then he still let the guy come to the club. Like, was that connected yeah. to this mob thing? You know, is it possible that 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 could have been a factor? And I I mean, to me, I think it could be. I think it, it absolutely could be. We don't know again. And it just feels like, like I'm saying, it always, anytime uh, there's that much death surrounding one person or one thing, it feels like there's got to be something else. Or, or I think my brain and lots of people's brains try and place a meaning on it because it feels like chaos, if not, and that feels overwhelming to me anyway. Um, but then the only other thing I will option is or offer is much like I suggested in the Glee Curse, which is, is it also possible that this is somebody who was like wanting very much to be successful, wanting very much for something to and, you know, called upon some dark energies of kinds or to this mob theory called upon for some sort of loan or some sort of, you know what I mean? Is it possible that there was a dark energy that was attached and then unfortunately this is all all the kinds of things that happened? Either way, um, such a sad um, losses of life. Uh, certainly, uh, these the, Nick Denoya and, and Dorothy did not deserve to lose their lives, obviously, um, for, you know, obviously. Um, but so sad that it was all kind of wrapped up in something that was bringing so many people so much joy. It's it's sad that there was, of course, um, such a, a negative uh, negative thing attached to it. So those are my thoughts. Uh, that's where I'm at. And uh, I, I like your thoughts. I you. like, I mean, again, the moment that I heard Will Mott be like, oh, a guy came in, asked if I was Nick. I said, no, Nick's over there, and then went to the bathroom. It was the timing that I was like, well, that's sketchy because we've been doing this long enough now that we're like, well, what, what was that person really doing? Like, we're immediately paranoid and suspicious of everyone uh, because that's that's how you do this, apparently. Oh, yeah. Um, I would not be surprised in any way that Mob would be involved it could be as simple as they saw the cash that was going through and they used it for money laundering. Totally. And Great then point. maybe they found that they weren't getting the amount back that they thought they would or they felt like maybe they should get a little extra or something and 
he felt his hands were tied and he had to do it. I mean, is it possible that Steve is innocent as his family believes? I don't know. I'm less likely to believe that. For their sake, I would like to, but I'm just more sad for those kids and their yeah. upbringing. Yeah. The fact that they were like three and nine when their dad died and then their mom died like know, seven years later. Sad. And then it was, uh, life didn't get easier. Yeah. Specifically for him uh, when he moved with the aunt and uncle. And so I just can't imagine going through that. So I'm not surprised that he's kind of all over the place now. He just, he idolizes his, his father so, so much that it's just, it's just hard to see. Yeah. And he just won't see that his dad did anything wrong. And I get it. It's his hero. Right. But. But you know what's interesting too, him being innocent. and I love that I am just putting this together now. Also, but like, how did he meet Ray? Like, how did he get hooked up with Ray? Like, Ray's like, well, he came to me and and asked me to do these jobs for him. It's like, well, yeah. was he referred to you by your mutual mob connection? You know what I mean? Like, it's like, it, it doesn't. Point. It does not feel. We are so. To me, it's like this is so uh, organized crime adjacent you know what i mean like it feels like it's very close in terms of like you're saying it's a great front for money laundering you're dealing with things like turf wars or or you know firebombing other clubs like these all feel yeah. very in the wheelhouse um oh, also yeah. when what's his name mr mott was like he's over there i'm gonna go to the bathroom which reminds me of one of my favorite movie moments ever and it's from a, a classic that i know you're gonna be like are you are you serious? And I am. Weekend at Bernie's. Uh, there oh, is a moment. Solid. There is a moment. It it holds up. I watched it again in the pandemic and I laughed the whole time. And if you don't, it's because you're 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 thinking about it too hard. You gotta just give over to what it is, dear listeners. And if you do, it's a romp. Uh, but there's a moment where they like witness a shooting and then there's like a pause, and one of them is like, I was looking at my watch. And Andrew McCarthy goes, I'm blind. And it was just like <laughs> such a simple, stupid joke, but it makes me laugh so hard. But it's that same thing where it's like, he's over there. I'm going to go to the restroom now. Like it just felt, but doesn't that also feel like, could this Mott character be in on it or, or no? Like, could he have been alerted that it's like at such and such a time, this mob guy's going to come and deal with, or this guy connected to the mob is going to deal with Nick. So get out of the room so that you're not involved. Like, I think it's more yeah. than possible that he also could have been covering. Like, you know, do I think that this is black and white and cut and dry? And, and, and no, I think that it's more than possible that there is a lot of detail that we will probably never know. Um, but to your point, do I think that he is completely innocent, completely framed, had absolutely no hand in it? No. Again, it could have been that he got in too deep with with people and, and unfortunately found him in a position where he was having to, to do these things. But... Um, Again, either way, either way, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, I I also have a question about uh, the plea deal. Yeah. Like, was the plea deal, was the whole idea like, look, if you confess to it so that we can, like, put this case to bed and be like, we got it, then we'll cut your sentence in half. Right. And then he was just like. All right, yeah, 
Like, is that what the whole main deal was? It's a great like, question. I, I just don't see what the appeal would have been for him. I guess 26 years is better than 55. <laughs> right. But it's interesting, too. I love now I'm like, now I'm going down this mob theory. But think about this for a second. Let's say that Ray knew him through the mob, which is what I'm saying. Because it's like, yeah. how do you just meet this guy that you automatically trust to, to hire to do these crimes for you? Yeah. Like, it feels to me that this is like a referral basis. Like, someone in your your mutual friends was like, this is the guy to go to. And the mutual friends probably could have been, or could possibly, I'm speculating, alleging, um, could have been involved in organized crime. Doesn't it also feel interesting that then Ray, when he's done this deal with the feds, the feds, wasn't it? Oh, I like that. Uh, he immediately says, you know, he told me that if he does, if he got arrested, ooh, he's going to. He's going to run or he's going to commit suicide. Like, it, it, now I know I'm so, I sound like a conspiracy theorist, but it is also interesting that his first thing was to say, you know what? He might be suicidal. And then he kills himself in prison. Like, is it possible, again, that a very high-powered organized crime, you know, could have had something to do with that? I think it could. The detail of a, a note that's in a you know, a language that is other than English, that feels like it could be a mob move. I mean, that is an exceptionally smart way to make it look like this was absolutely a suicide. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. I also want to know, uh, I'd like to see a photo of the note. Great point. Did the note really exist? Where The guards well, say they found one. Where is it? The joke is I'll Google... And it'll be like the first hit or something. I don't think it exists. <laughs> but um, I just find it interesting that they say it existed, but do we know for sure? But if it does, you're right. Someone could easily have put it there. Easily. They could have made him write it. You know what I mean? Like, again, like we're dealing with... We're dealing with things that, you know, uh, it's it's hard to speculate about because you don't want to talk about it too much because you don't want to go down that road too much. You know what I mean? Like, it's scary sure. because it's like these people are powerful and, and above the law and all of the above. That's like the whole point. That's the reason why there's such a fascination with all these uh, kinds of things. Um, anyway, uh, Christy Oxborough, what a ride. This was this really was a journey. It uh, Well, and that's a callback to the middle of the episode. Thank you so uh, much. Yeah. It was, there's a lot to it. I had, I mean, nothing makes me laugh harder than seeing a lot of 80s stuff while I'm watching, you know, the documentary and watching all this classic 80s because I was not an adult in the 80s. So it's seeing it from a whole new perspective. And it was just, what a romp. And every turn there was something else. And I will say they in the in the documentary they focused on one specific dancer who uh, played the perfect man, right? And his he ended up meeting a woman at the club. She was she was often there, and they ended up dating and they got married and they had a kid and he ended up moving to New York and that was he was the big show in the New York club when they opened. And then it was like over the course of like, I think it's like four episodes or maybe it was five. But over the course of the episodes, he would be in there every once in a while telling his story, explaining what it was like and, you know, his life since then, that kind of thing. And it was like he ended up getting like 
heavily into drugs. He was cheating on his wife all the time. He was like, it was just put out in front of you. You'd be ridiculous to say no. Uh, destroyed his marriage. And his quotes were like, yeah, it destroyed my marriage. It destroyed my relationship with my son. It destroyed my relationship with my son's mother. All of this. And then at the end, he goes, but you know what? If I had to do it all over again, do it in a heartbeat. No. I was like, dude. I was like, no. Read the room. Again, I understand they edit those in a certain way. But I was just like, oof. Maybe say, I loved it. I had a great time. I just wish more than anything. Like, you're you're fine about the wife. Fine. But don't just like, I wish it hadn't, you know, wrecked things with my child but yes just simply like i loved it and then leave it at that and we can be like but what about and then there's no what about leave it but it was the you know i'd do it again <laughs> he danced for them for like 20 years wow yeah and the joke was they were like do you remember the the moves and he was like oh to that one he's like no i don't know and then he got up and started doing them and i was impressed I was impressed that it's like in there. What like I love is he's like, brain. what? No, I couldn't possibly. What? Yeah, it was like I that. Mean. Oh, it's been so long. Five, six, seven, <laughs> eight. And, it was, and he was in it. So I, I give him kudos for that. But uh, it was just a wild end to a wild documentary to be like, you know what? I'd do it again. And I'm like, but I... I don't, I don't know if you've thought through what that means. But again, maybe they cut it a certain way to make it. I don't know. But it just, I don't know. I mean, me, I think if at some point was, he said, <laughs> I, it destroyed my relationship with my wife and my child. And at some point he said, I'd do it all again. I mean, he said both those things. So it feels like that's hard to take yeah. out of context too far. Yeah. It was, it was just such a, oh, okay. And like the hair, like all of the 80s hair for me was killing me. The outfits in the videos, it was, it was just, it was like going to a time capsule. It was a real, a real ride. I love it. Yeah. Well, I'm sure somewhere in there, you and I, time traveling us, the hug smugglers was there watching, taking in one of these original Chippendales shows. And I like that for us. I need to believe that we're there. Yeah. And I can't wait. We're going to be the two older ones in the back laughing so hard because, you know, delightful. Exactly. I what a wait. delight. Yes. Uh, on that note, this was a delight. Uh, was. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Uh, again, it's always a joy for us, and we're so glad that you're here for the ride. Uh, if you haven't already, give us a follow on the social medias, on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, at True Crime and Cocktails, on Twitter, at Not Detectives. We're on Patreon, where you can sign up and subscribe and get bonus episodes, a live monthly Q&A. You can take part in a monthly poll to decide one of the episodes we do on the podcast here. That's patreon.com slash true crime and cocktails. And of course, the only place for official true crime and cocktails merch is truecrewmerch.com. Uh, check that out. Lots of cute stuff over there. Some Valentine's Day decor, uh, decor, 
<laughs> themed things, which I also think you could wear year round. Um, very cute. So check that out if you haven't already. Now, Christy, do you want to uh, tell the people about next week's episode? Oh, I assumed this one. This was your like you planted this seed. I couldn't possibly it, so. on the next <laughs> true crime and cocktails. <laughs> A five, six, seven. Eight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sarah Jones. Now, if you're not familiar with Sarah Jones, she, of course, was a camera assistant working on a film uh, a few years ago who very tragically lost her life uh, on set. This is a story that has been brought up recently, obviously, because of the Alec Baldwin tragedy that happened on the set of the movie Rust, uh, where some people did lose their lives. And so it had me kind of interested. I I was reading about it, and I discovered so much that I texted Christy, and I said, we have to talk about this on the show. So I am jazzed. I'm not jazzed about the subject matter because it is extremely uh, tragic and sad, but I think it is an important story to tell. So tune back in next week for that. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Chris Farley. Oh, good night, Patrick Swayze. <laughs> <laughs>